Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the uh, movie review show where bad things happen. Yes, bad things uh, happen all the time. <laughs> My name is Whitney Seibold. I am a bad man. <laughs> All right, I'm a film critic. I write for uh, IGN and various other sites that might have me. And with me, as always, is my scintillating co-host. Uh, my name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for The Rap and Bloody Disgusting, and everybody calls me Bibbs. Last week on Critically Acclaimed, we highlighted our picks for the best films of the year. Boy, howdy did we ever, and so many good ones. It was a really excellent year for cinema. However, Whitney and I are of the opinion mm. that when you are talking about posterity and when you are looking over um, all of the films that came out in a certain year it is irresponsible to only pick the good stuff yeah there, there's that's, that's just rewriting history and pretending the bad stuff wasn't out there, there there's a, a current sort of trend within the discourse that is very anti worst of the year list mm-hmm. as if they're only constructed to be cruel or to pick on somebody or to make uh make fans feel bad about their favorite movies. Uh, and to be fair, I'm not saying no one has ever done that, but mm. that is just shitty writing. Or uh, podcasting. It's, it's, it's crappy writing, and also when you're reducing anything to list form, you have to uh, condense. True. You have to write something in maybe a sentence or three. Maybe a paragraph, if you're lucky, for each entry yeah. in your list. I usually manage to you, pad it out. Yeah, yeah. Some, well... Because you're a you're a determined writer who mm-hmm. likes to likes to pad, yeah. Um, but yeah, this this idea. So when you're writing about sort of the worst films of the year, all you can really do is sort of sum up your emotions rather yeah. than kind of recap specifics. This about one what makes hurt. Something, yeah, this yeah. one hurt me really bad. It was really horrible, and I'm surprised Hollywood released it. It's very general, but I think that can sum up your feelings very well. Yeah, it's not necessarily worth reading mm-hmm. though. It's just basically it's, this one sucked. I didn't need to read a whole sentence about that. You could have mm. just put you doing the raspberry in front of it going... Uh, well, and, and in fact, maybe that would be fine. Yeah, but we don't like, believe uh, in the, that. Yeah, n- number blank. Just in brackets, raspberry noise. Move which, to the next number. Which would be fine, but mm. Whitney and I don't believe in that. We believe mm-hmm. that if we're going to take a lot of time to really highlight the best films of the year, we need to talk about the films that we need to learn from. The films that yeah. uh, made missteps that maybe future filmmakers can avoid. Uh, movies that really rubbed us the wrong way, and we can analyze why that is. Mm. We really want to give these films, which we do not like... The respect <laughs> of revisiting them and mm-hmm. reconsidering them and talking about what we took away from the experience of watching them because I think just pretending they didn't exist is arguably even worse for their legacy. Yeah, it, it's highlighting the best, great. Highlighting the worst, it's like we, we need to know where the lows are in order to balance out the highs. Mm-hmm. We need to take full stock of the entire landscape of cinema in a year. Yeah. Where we were going, what we thought was going to be good that was successful, what we thought was going to be good that was not. Nobody sets out to make a great film. Failure uh, is... Nobody sets out to make a bad to film. To make a bad film. A lot of people like set out that. to make a great everybody, film. Everybody makes it, sets out to make a good film. <laughs> nobody sets out to make a bad film. And uh, Even if you're intentionally trying to make is, a bad film, you're trying to make it something well, people would want to watch. You're trying so to make you're not maybe, really. a, maybe a corny entertaining film or something that's ironic or overblown or over the top in some sort of way, but you're not seeking to fail. No one's yeah. seeking to fail. Yeah, you want people to see and, this and enjoy it. And I think failure is very interesting because we're the people who make movies are looking at the entertainment landscape, they're responding to it, and trying to come up with something that they think audiences or a certain audience is going to respond to. Right. And when they don't, then there's 
we we have discovered some sort of strange disconnect yeah. between an artist and an audience or an artist and a critic. And I think that kind of disconnect is where a lot of development and discourse is to be found. I agree. I, I, think, I, think, I think we I think learn a lot lo- from looking, our mistakes. Yeah, I think looking at these bad films is a very vital part of our job. Also, as critics, when we're sitting in a theater and we're watching it and we're feeling wrath because uh-huh. we hate this piece of crap so much, these end-of-the-year lists give us a good excuse just to blow off a little steam. Well, I mean, we, every movie is trying to instill mm-hmm. within their audience a reaction. Yeah, Usually positive reactions. Sometimes they want you to be righteously angry or sad. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end, you're not supposed to be pissed that you watched the movie. Yeah, yeah. If a movie achieves that reaction, I think it's worth examining why. <laughs> why, why at the end of this movie, that everyone clearly went in with good intentions and really wanted to make something that would make us, if not happy, then at least entertained or feel like we got our money's worth. And why at the end did we did we not feel that? Mm. That's really important, and I think we can really learn from a lot. I have a lot of films of different genres and different budgets yeah, yeah, on yeah. my list. Um, some people only like to highlight like the really big stuff. I feel like it's a little harsh to maybe focus on like straight to video or whatever. Those movies are often working already with a hand time behind their back. Mm-hmm. Well, when, but um, when there's still plenty to choose from. I think a responsible critic can watch like some really horrible, schlocky, straight-to-video, super low-budget film and would be able to look through the low budget yeah. uh, and see the ambition therein. Well, I think and every, if there's, yeah. in something like that, a good performance or a good idea or a good scene or two, a good critic will be able to sort of highlight those things and not just say, this was a low-budget piece of crap, unless, of course... It is. Every every movie shouldn't be gauged off of some people think that like bad movie is low production value. Low production value, yeah. incompetence. And that's not the case. Sometimes it is. And there are some films on on my list that are, in some respects, incompetent. There are elements of the production that are clearly really falling short. Mm-hmm. Um but it's also possible to competently make something ill advised. Oh, and indeed. And in fact, a couple of mine are big budget films. Exactly. Uh, when we're gauging a film and whether or not we think that it is good or, mm. or bad, um, we're not gauging it based off of, well, how much money did it cost? We're not gauging it mm. based off of even necessarily other films that did similar things. What we're doing is we're trying to watch the film and see what is this film trying to do to us? Mm. How well is it succeeding? And there's a lot of films this year that tried and just didn't do what they said they were going to do, or did so really, 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 really badly. Mm. So, uh, with that said, another caveat, Whitney and I have seen hundreds of movies this year, we didn't see everything. Yeah. And there are some yeah. indeed, there are indeed some films that well, are rather notorious that I never got around to. I intended, before we did this episode, to see a movie called Unplanned. I heard a lot of horrible things about Unplanned. Mm-hmm. Unplanned sounds really really bad but mm. i cannot say from personal experience so i cannot make my list but everything i've read about it makes it sound really bad and irresponsible mm. but i can't say that i don't know for certain so 
that and a few other films that you may have heard bad things about, we may not have seen those. These are goth. These are only off of our personal experience, but we try to seek out films from all walks of life, films mm. from all uh, budget sizes, uh, words of mouth. We try to see as much as we possibly can. Yep. All right. So, Whitney, what is your yeah. number ten pick? Uh, my number ten pick is uh, perhaps an unexpected pick, and it might seem like I'm grabbing at low hanging fruit or picking at the big boys uh-huh. or just sort of slamming down the big giant mainstream blockbusters that. Actually, was actually kind of well acclaimed, but it was Spider-Man: Far From Home. Oh, as, interesting! As one of as my tenth worst film of the year. I didn't care for now, this, but I wouldn't have thought it would be I, on a worse list. I didn't care for it at all, and it's not that it did anything wrong. In fact, um, <laughs> well, that's an interesting. I know. I know. Interesting is, critique. Hear me out. Uh, there's yeah. The, the script was fine. The character work was fine. In fact, I like the character work a lot in this movie. I think mm. the stuff with the teens traveling through Europe is bright and funny. I think the messaging in this film is really, really wrong. Uh, the whole idea is, and this goes back to an idea that was introduced. Uh, this was from the Avengers series. It was right. the latest one in the Avengers series. It came after Endgame, strangely mm-hmm. enough. Well, it had to, because uh, otherwise Spider-Man would uh, still be dead. Uh, I suppose so. Or they could set it before. It's they fine, could have, but, yeah. but they didn't. They didn't. It's set after Endgame. And it goes back to a concept that was introduced in the Civil War film, where... How much freedom should a team of freelance superheroes be given to essentially run the crime fighting in the world? Mm-hmm. Now, if you have super-powered supervillains, it kind of makes sense that you should have super-powered superheroes facing off against them. Yeah. Defending, or defending all us normies. Yeah. Uh, but the big conflict was, should the government be permitted to have them be government agents, essentially in make them... A, a military branch, which is what they are anyway. Yeah, they're just or, not really directly affiliated. Yeah, they they, they have not, no oversight. They have no oversight whatsoever. Should they have oversight, or should they be allowed to just sort of run free willy-nilly? Yeah. And with Spider-Man Far From Home, we are finally given a definitive answer. They should be allowed to run free willy-nilly, because a teenage boy, without any warning, is given an army of space-bound death drones just because... The he's guy a pretty who invented good kid. them. He's a pretty good kid. Yeah, he doesn't have any military training. He and doesn't, he doesn't, and he's absurd. not even proven himself as like a, a morally upright person. He's just a teenager. No, in fact, in his previous film, he made a lot of really, really bad calls. Yeah, he mm. grew as a character, but I'm not he's, sure not he should ch- have yeah. weapons of mass destruction he's not in, yet. He shouldn't be in charge of missiles. And it's absurd because it's not like Tony Stark doesn't know anybody else. Exactly. Like he knows all sorts of really responsible people. Hell, his wife. <laughs> Pepper Potts is a very responsible person. Put, Give it put, to her. He put her in charge of, of the whole his company in one yeah, of the movies. Yeah. Give her, give, her, give her an give Iron Man suit, like just we're not gonna like it's. it's but he's such gonna a give these weird, missiles to a teenage boy. It's and an the, absurd plot point around which yeah. to revolve an entire motion the picture, whole, yeah. especially considering it's kind of not important. It's really it's, not. Well, Spider-Man's journey isn't about him learning to control weapons of mass destruction. No, it's about him fact, learning to ask MJ out on a date. Well, and and here's another frustrating thing: the whole deal with superhero is about being a responsible hero, right? It's yeah. about s- sacrificing your free time and your own ego and your own desires yeah. to aid others. That's what yeah. makes you a hero. Selflessness. Yeah, selflessness. Yeah. This entire movie, even though Spider-Man. The, that character is predicated on the notion of with great power comes great responsibility. Which hasn't he really has, come up yet in this universe. Have you he, noticed that? He, yeah, he, he is actually told incessantly by others 
that he needs to stop taking responsibility and he takes their advice. Mm-hmm. So we have a responsibility-free teenage boy who's a ni- nice, likable kid. Oh, I, love, I boy. love Tom Holland. Tom He's Holland the, is I, fine in that role. In fact, it, regardless of wh- how I feel mm. about his movies, I feel that they're okay at best. Uh, I think he's the best Spider-Man we've ever had. He's a wonderful Spider-Man. I, I, yeah, I... You could make arguments. I have no. Be- saying, I, I, I have no beefs with any of the Spider Man. But uh, the, the, the cast in this movie yeah. is impeccable. I'm yeah, the, say cast, that right. the cast is just and the, and the sense of humor even, is fine. Yeah. But yeah, when the super villain is is the one making the good points, yeah, <laughs> your your movie is a little bit adrift. I'm. I uh, here's something that bugged me about it. And mm. again, the, the, I didn't particularly care for this movie. I think I gave it like a low C uh-huh. on our scale, where we review movies from C minus to C plus. Mm. Um, I think. One of the things that really bugs me about this movie is that it's built around this sort of David Mimetian plot structure. There's mm-hmm. a twist. I think that if Spider-Man had actually followed everyone's advice and been really selfish, mm-hmm. nothing bad would have happened. No. In fact, I'm pretty sure the villain's plan would have failed. <laughs> no one... I mean, like, there was some property damage, but no one mm-hmm. died that I'm aware of. Like... Everything basically would have been okay because the threat that Spider-Man had to like assume responsibility in order to face was bullshit. Mm. So really, with great power comes great irresponsibility. <laughs> he made a huge mistake trying to be. It's such a weirdly constructed but film. It, it's it's weirdly constructed. I think a lot of the big CGI monster fights are pretty bland. Just generally speaking, there's I a think- really cool one when Mysterio is like. Messing with Peter Parker's head and like oh, goes, putting like kind of a weird abstract thing, and they're go. doing a lot of homages to some of the more bizarre covers of the comic books. Mm. And I thought that whole bit, okay, doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's very you know visually interesting okay. in a way that a lot of Marvel Cinematic Universe movies aren't. That's true. As that, much as I like them, they're not always very interesting visually. That, that was a really cool sequence. That's pretty fair, but I think o- overall, I think the, the character just comes across as. This bland kid who doesn't really have much of a say in his own life anymore. Yeah. Uh, he like yeah, he's nice and charming, but it made me realize I don't want to see this guy anymore. I want to. See- I don't need to see any more Spider Man. And at the end of this movie, I felt like I'm just done with the character altogether. Okay, I'm a diehard Spider Man fan. I grew uh, well, up Spider Man. Me, me too, and I just died hard. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, fair enough. Right. I don't feel the same way. Right. I love the character. I am frustrated that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has had two movies. Mm. In Mar- Spider Man is in the Marvel Universe. He's had two Spider Man movies, not counting the crossovers. Mm. To tell whatever story Marvel wanted to do. And what they wanted to tell was not very interesting and not even really about Peter Parker. No, I about, want it's Peter about Parker Peter, stories. It, well, the story Every other is, superhero gets a story about themselves. Peter uh, Parker gets a story about how he's going to live up to Iron Man. How he, how he wishes that, he was Iron Man. That bugs me. Yeah, I want all, to see a story about him. Mm. That's I, I, Again, the first, I'm judging the movie yeah. based on what it is. But what it is, is not something I'm very interested in. Mm. So, again, it didn't make my list, but I totally see why we got to move on. All right, my number 10 is a movie. uh, This is probably, like, the easiest, like, all right, it sucks. What did you expect? Mm. But um, it's just so hackneyed and basically incompetent that I had to throw this in there. Uh, It is a horror movie called Polaroid. 
Oh, <laughs> I wanted to see Polaroid. I missed it. There are a fair number of, like, on the surface, not very good horror mm-hmm. movies that came out this year that I thought were fine. Countdown is a stupid movie, but I had a good time watching <laughs> Countdown. Countdown's on my runners up. But I, yeah. I get it, and I totally yeah. get it, but I had a fun time watching that movie, even though, or perhaps because of, mm-hmm. its silliness. Polaroid. I couldn't get into it because of its silliness. Mm. If you're unfamiliar with the film, it barely came out in September. It was supposed to come out years ago. It got held up because of the whole Weinstein company falling apart. Um, But it's a story of a haunted Polaroid camera. You take someone's picture with the camera. uh, There's a little dark specter or something in the background you might not notice. Spectral photography thing. Yeah, yeah, and then shortly thereafter, the person in the photo gets killed by that ghost. Right. It was like the plot of an Are You Afraid of the Dark episode or something, mm. or maybe Goosebumps, or maybe both. <laughs> it's not a complicated idea. Um, I'm fine with that. I was on board with that. I'm like, okay, haunted camera. Bunch yeah. of people are going to die. Maybe some sort of camera-related incidents. I'm with you. <laughs> so much of this movie is so goddamn stupid, though. Like, there's a bit... The, the camera is like an antique. It's, an, it's not a new one you get at Urban Outfitters. It's Although there is a line where mm-hmm. someone brings the camera to a party and says, Ooh, someone went to Urban Outfitters where this is currently available. <laughs> I added that well, last bit, but that was the intention. That is, was the is underline. It, is it like one of the vintage fold-open yeah. with a portable flash kind of Polaroid cameras where it ejects out the front? Yeah. Okay. It's it's Polaroid still makes cameras, by the way. Oh, I know. W- with the, the instant development. Oh, yeah. They're like these big sort of puffy square, like brightly colored. The, this yeah. one's a more classic model. This one's like the 1970s. But there's All a right. bit where someone brings in this camera mm. from the 1970s to an antique store because it's an antique and people mm. don't make them anymore. And they're like, okay, maybe someone at this antique store would buy them. And then our hero, who's a young woman, uh, she uh, she picks up the camera and goes, wow, you know they don't make these anymore. And I'm like, yeah, it's an antique. You work in an antique store. She's so she's so thinly developed. Well, and also here's the thing: they do make those. I know. You get those, but not a specific brand. But regardless, well, well maybe not. Even so, yeah. yeah, you're in an antique store, and then it's like she's so thinly developed this character that the only thing like really notable about her is that she wears a scarf. Mm. And there's a part where you can tell you can tell it's added in ADR too, where mm. she's walking around school and someone says, "Hey, scarf girl!" And then later <laughs> oh, on in God. the movie, she tells her mom, "Did you know they call me Scarf Girl?" Stop wearing the scarf. If you're self-conscious about your neck, because I feel like maybe she had like a scarf, trying to remember. But like, wear a turtleneck. You have options. Pop your collar. You look hip. Like, I don't know. It's so terrible. And then there's, and then it's just full of She takes the scarf off and her head falls off. And then it's full of these like cliches or whatever. But there's this one thing they do. Mm -hmm. And this for me sealed it. This for me was like, you, you totally had an opportunity to skirt the most obvious cliche in the world. Mm And it's something that they just leaned into anyway, and it's why I just I had to put it in my top ten, because you had an opportunity, the perfect opportunity, to fix a problem in horror movies. You know in horror movies where there's a bunch of people, and they're under a curse, or they're seeing a ghost or something, and then they go to the authorities like you're supposed to, mm-hmm. and then they can't prove that it's real, so the authorities don't believe them? Right. It's a trope. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you get it? You want to say, like, these people tried to do the right thing, but no one can prove it. Ah. <laughs> In Polaroid, mm. earlier in the film, they showed that if you try to burn a Polaroid picture from this camera, mm-hmm. like that you think that might solve the curse, it just causes things to go on fire. That sets like the person in the picture on yeah. fire, I'm sure. Yeah. So, we've established that at any time they can prove magic is real. And they just choose not to. 
Even though it would fix the film. Mm. Even though, like, there's really nothing we need. Like, it's not like the cops are going to be able to, like, oh, okay, well, let me take you to our paranormal crimes division. Like, no, it's not going to help anything. It just, Mm. they're just stupid because it's a cliche, not because it even fits the movie. I I would love to see that cliche in a movie where somebody goes into the police station. This camera is haunted. And they, that camera's not haunted. Prove it. And they set something on fire and nothing happens because there's always, they can't prove it in front of the cop. Yeah. And, uh. And the cop says, get out of here, get out of here. And then somebody from the back says, wait, wait, come with me. And they go down, like, the hallway. Okay, this is where we do all the paranoid shit. Okay, give your report. And it's just as boring. Like, yeah. they just fill out a report. Okay, well, we, we got to have their own just, X-Files department. They have their own X-Files, but it's just as boring as the front of the police station. <laughs> it's like, okay, so so what are you going to do? Well, you, we follow the report. Just wait. We'll, we'll start investigating. Our investigations take, like, six months. Six months? My friends will all be dead. Come on. We're backlogged here. We got the Etch-A-Sketch. <laughs> Got the haunted, they got like eight see, haunted dolls. You ever see yeah. a person get Rubik's Cubed? Yeah. It's disgusting. <laughs> That's actually not a bad idea, actually. I, think, I want to see that new Hellraiser now. All right, let's move on. We're, we're still waiting for that that toad. That's that's Lieutenant Callahan over there. He's still waiting for him to turn back. What's your number nine? My number nine is Angel Has Fallen. Oh, another what? one that wasn't even bad enough to make my list. The, the blandest of the bland, <laughs> the dumbest of the dumb. That's it's, so it, bland. <laughs> overall, Angel Has Fallen is a, a completely forgettable film. Okay, that's, you, that's where you're waiting to end before the next film starts on cable television. Yeah. Like you, you see yeah. the ending like yeah, a million like, times because it's around right before something you actually. Oh, I, n- I never saw the fifth Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, I gotta watch thirty minutes of Angel Has Fallen first. That's that's where this belongs. Yeah, this is nothing. This movie is it, it, it's like trying to eat air. Like it, say what you will about the first two Has Fallen mm-hmm. movies, yeah. they at least had an ethos. There was an irresponsible ethos. Yeah, the second one, <laughs> London Has Fallen, is gross. London Has Fallen ends with Morgan Freeman making a speech about mm. how America will take over the world, and that's a good thing. And how great that is! And I think and, I think uh, there's a shirtless uh, Gerard Butler standing on top of Big Ben with two machine guns, <laughs> just screaming and firing them both at the same time. No, that was a rejection. Poster though, uh, yeah, no, that, that's what it felt like in my brain. Angel has fallen. The story is I forgot. Uh, no, it's he's, it's, he's it's about Mike Benning. He's framed for trying to kill the president. He goes on the lamb. He meets up with his dad, who's Nick Nolte, because of course it's Nick Nolte. And I'm I'm an American. I'm Nick Nolte, and it, and that's the movie. Uh, that's actual, di- they're, they're actual kind dialogue. Of, they're kind of perfectly matched, but also exactly wrong. Yeah, like it's yeah, kind yeah. Of, it is maybe the most amazing piece of casting of the year. <laughs> but no, I'm not no. saying it's good casting, but it's amazing mm. casting. There's a lot of talk of trauma and how Mike Bannon's trying to build his family again, and uh, all of all of the movie is just completely bland. It would not make my worst of the year list. Were it not for that stinger. Oh, the bit at the end? The bit at the end. Okay. Where, okay, so the story is over. Mike Banning has been exonerated. That's and not it's, a spoiler. And it's, and it's all perfunctorily told. Yeah. Before we get to the stinger you, thing. You like, know whatever, everything's going to happen it's, as, it's before it happens. It's just slightly more expensive than a straight-to-video action movie. Yeah. Like, there's but like it's a, just as thoughtful. Yeah, and it's just as, like, mm. th- some action sequences are, like, kind of hard to piecemeal. Or some of them are, like, obviously in front of, like, green screen to sort of solve mm. editing problems. And it's just not very interesting interesting or good mm. but it's like at least it's like he's you know he's people think he kills the president he goes in the land he proves he didn't saves the president there's a big action sequence danny houston plays the bad guy he's trying and i'll give him <laughs> for that yeah but yeah but at the end like he resolves things with his dad and it seems like everything's more or less resolved well, and, and fine and, and then that's that 
I would then the credits start rolling. I would be I wouldn't be surprised if this was a different director who did this little after Stinger because I it's, be it's like either. photographed a little differently. It's a totally different the tone. The tone is totally different and yeah, Gerard Butler and Nick Nolte are sitting in just lounge chairs having a conversation saying, "Wow, we sure survived that, didn't we?" It's like they they weren't even done with the film yet and they didn't know how it was going to end yeah. and they're improvising. Wow. So w- what are we going to do? I I don't know. Hey, why don't we do like a sensory deprivation tank together? We never mentioned this oh, earlier, and this is irrelevant uh, oh, to everything okay, we're talking about. What? Okay, so, and then we cut to the spa, and they have two side-by-side sensory deprivation tanks, which kind of defeats the purpose, if you ask me. It completely <laughs> defeats the purpose. You're supposed to be deprived mm. of all sensation and, like, mm. connection to the outside world. If you can talk to someone and next door, yeah, and, they, and they're, they're in these pools of water saying, wow, this is weird, embarrassing, new age kind of thing. Men like us wouldn't ordinarily, ordinarily do this thing. And then somebody shuts the lights off in the studio... I think the cameraman did it just because they were bored. <laughs> and the last bit of dialogue we hear is them in the dark saying, hey, hey, we're in here. And that's the way the movie ends. Yeah, the movie was not it's, funny before this. And this it is, wasn't a comedy before this. It's just this weird This thing little thing is so bad and so baffling. And it colors the rest of the film as something that was completely unintended. Like, the whole movie was just this kind of wisp of a daydream. <laughs> Leading into this weird, bad comedy bit. What if, what if, though, I'm going to ask you this question because, mm. like, this, I feel like if this is the case, maybe you'll have to backtrack this and say this was a good idea. If the mm. next film in the series, and believe it or not, they're making more. I know. Mars if the next film fallen, in the series is Day Spa Has Fallen, and that was the actual oh leading God. into it, and the next, the rest of the movie is Gerard Butler and Nick Nolte naked fighting terrorists at a big fancy day spa. You know what? I'd be down. Right? Wouldn't you if, have to if apologize? If that was what they ran with, yeah, yeah, I, I, would, I would. I would eat my words. I would apologize <laughs> to all of the makers of Angel Has Fallen if it got us to the day spa has fallen. All right, all right my number nine. Mm. My number nine is a movie. If you tried to make a parody of this movie, you would wind up with the same film. <laughs> it is a biopic called Tolkien. Oh, I didn't see Tolkien. Tolkien. I, I, I heard it was really boring. It's really, it's really funny, actually, but not, not intentionally. Uh-huh. Uh, Tolkien uh, stars uh, Nicholas Holt, an actor I actually really, really like. Okay. Um, as J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Uh, uh, and that's kind of kind of all he's known for. Well, that's all he's he's known done for, a lot. He actually did a really terrific uh, translation from the old English of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Yeah, he which was I've a, read. Well, he was, um, a, he was a linguist mm. more than anything else. I really he's, studied languages. Yeah, he's known for being an author, but yeah, that's what. Yeah. Uh, um, and this. Mm, it, it, I remember thinking to myself as I'm watching this film, how horrifically ironic it was Hmm. that here is someone who is known for being one of the greatest authors of the 20th century and his own story was so trite (laughs) like the movie just makes it seem like this like every single thing Hmm. that ever happened to him was like just something that was going to be important later in the hobbit books like how he's like initially oh, no. he lives this idyllic life in the country, oh, like the Shire, get it? And then he moves to an urban sprawl like Mordor, get it? Mm. Eventually he goes to World War One and like the plumes of smoke look like a Balrog, get it? Mm. And all of them are not even from the books; they're like the versions of it from the movies. Oh, so it's from not the even Peter, the Peter Jackson film. Which I, again, I like those movies, at least the Lord of the Rings ones, mm. but. 
to say that not only was Tolkien's whole life <laughs> that's terrible. A, a build up to his books, which yeah. I can handle. It's it's hackneyed, but I can handle it. But to say that it, the real the real reason we're here is to show the inspiration for those movies you like. <laughs> Is so goddamn insulting. Well, you you once saw a biopic, like a TV biopic on J.K. Rowling. Yeah, very similar. Magic Beyond Words. Magic Beyond Words. And wasn't there like a character named Ron who she describes as being weaselly at yes, one point. That's that's a hundred percent true. They, he was lanky and had red hair and she called him a weaselly guy. There's a bit in that movie where she's on a train, mm-hmm. um, and it's not unlike the train to Hogwarts. It's Wal- Walghorts Express. And someone uh, shows up with a candy cart mm-hmm. and she's distracted looking out the window, thinking her f- fabulous thoughts, and then the candy cart person says, beans. And then she's like, Oh, did you say every flavor beans? No, I said jelly beans. Flavor beans. How how whimsical. She sort of writes it down. And then she's like a later bit where she's like typing on a typewriter and vines are growing out of her typewriter because everything she writes is so goddamn magical. That's Tolkien, but Tolkien has a budget and like a real cast and like Derek Jacobi is in it. What? And you're just watching him like there's a bit towards in the middle of the movie. Derek Jacobi is one of the best actors. Like just period. There's a bit in the movie. He has made so many weird kooky choices late in his career. well, he's a working actor. He'll just yeah. do anything. There's a bit in the movie, like midway through, when uh, Tolkien, uh, like, he fell in love with a girl and they had their first kiss while they were in the basement underneath the production of Ring of the Nibelungen. Because, uh, well, I mean, get it. You know, he, you can just be familiar with the Ring of the Nib- Nibelungen. It's, but no, you have it's to, a pretty well known story. No, he had story. his first kiss there. That's why it's important. And um, he's like. Yeah, he can't just be inspired by the yeah, Ring of the Nibelungen. He finds out that she's engaged to some other guy. So he starts. So he gets really drunk and, like, starts wandering around his college yelling in made up languages. Oh, and God. Derek Jacobi's just like, How interesting is that? You there, boy, what language is this? And so he brings Derek Jacobi a goose or whatever. I'm making that part up. But, like, <laughs> it's that trite. It's that, like, contrived. What day is today? Well, I said it's Hobbit Day. And he's like, becomes Derek Jacobi's, like, apprentice. And he's, like, reading Derek Jacobi poetry. And mm-hmm. as he's reading him poetry about the evils of war, someone runs in and says, War! World War One has broken out! And they might as well have said the one. Like, it was so, like... I was about to say, did they really say World they War They might as well right? have. Like, it was that... Level of oh. like faith in the audience, and well, and Tolkien's just like, oh dear, well that's a big deal. Maybe we should stop reading poetry. Derek Jacobi is like, no, no, it's about to go in slow motion in a minute. Keep reading and be pompous. And so he reads this whole poem about like boys going to war. As all these boys are going to war and they're in slow motion, it is so hackneyed. If you want a blueprint on how not to write a biopic and how to write a biopic where everything feels false and contrived and nothing feels real. Tolkien. Mm. It's it's actually pretty funny how how bad it is. So like it ended up like really low on my list, but like you need to see this movie if you're ever writing a biopic or a biography of someone, this is what to avoid because this is the cliche. <laughs> this is the new like er example of how not to do a biopic for me. Mm. All right, what's All right. your number uh, eight? eight. I'm up to number number eight. Uh, number eight is. Uh, was the biggest waste of burning money I've seen all year, and it was John Favreau's The Lion King. Oh, that's my. Uh, uh, wait, well, hold on. Where did I put that? <laughs> that's on your list too. That's my number three. Number three. Yeah, yeah. The, the Lion King. Oh, first of all. This has nothing to do with nostalgia. I still haven't seen Rob Minkoff's The Lion King from yeah. the nineties. I've seen John Favreau's The Lion King, and all I saw was 
really impressive technical exercise stretched on for maybe one hour and 58 minutes too long. Uh, How long is it? Like 159? It's, it's over two hours. I know <laughs> Jesus. they like. Let me look up the, the running time. The original on this movie's thing. short, and you didn't even change the script. It's 100, do the, the original is almost two hours, 118 minutes. Okay. This film is, is nearly I'm, two hours. I'm going to look up the original Lion King. Yeah, which, which I think was maybe 90 minutes. Um, uh, but all they were trying 88. to. 88 minutes. Nice, brief. Added, added brief half thing. an hour without changing the script. Don't even they, know how you did the, that. The script is pretty much, from what I understand, is pretty much identical. There's they don't change mi- any plot points. There's a at few all. minor dialogue changes, yeah. and but yeah, basically it's. But they, they added one song. They, oh, okay. Uh, but the songs are all pretty much the same. Yeah. Uh, the approach of trying to create photorealistic animals, like talking and interacting with one another, is a fine idea unto itself, I suppose. Mm. Uh, I think it might have been better served if they tried to stage it after like those old Disney documentaries where we have like Burl Ives giving them all voices. <laughs> ah, and it looks like Simba's playing a little bit today. Right. That sort of thing would have worked just fine, even if you're just doing CGI. The CGI is first rate. Yeah, those are real looking animals. They look they look weirdly real actually. Yeah. Sometimes too real. Like I get the technology because like. I don't ever want a lion to get hurt making a movie, but I'd love for lions to be in movies. Yeah, I'd so like to put the lion in there. Like, put a, a camera. CGI. You've made it. Put a camera. At, point the camera at a lion. I buy it. It's great. Just put the fake lion in there, and it can do their, whatever you want. Cool. Their commitment to realism, however, robbed this particular project of any kind of cinematic heft, weight, or emotion mm-hmm. because lions aren't expressive. It's like looking at your cat. Okay. You've said this before. Mm, yeah. I, you've seen my cats. Mm-hmm. Are they not expressive? They, they have they have three emotions. They have hunger, they have indifference, and they have psychopath. You do not have enough... Like, I grew up with cats, all right? Okay, okay. then you grew up with <laughs> shitty cats. Like, you need to hang out with my cats. Luca right. is, is a great... My point is rubber band ball of emotion. When you animate, a, and I've I've noticed this for years because I've been doing it with dogs and cats. I noticed this with Babe back in the mid nineties, which is mm-hmm. around the time of the Lion King. Yeah, there. you can make expressive dog faces because dogs have expressive mouths that look like they could handle human dialogue, and they have like little eyebrows. They mm-hmm. have expressive faces. They can you can manipulate a dog's face within reason. Without making it, it look unrealistic. Without making it look too unrealistic and make it look like it's having human emotions. You can't do that with a lion. Unless you give them like big thick eyebrows or you kind of change their face a little bit, which they should have done and they easily could have done. But instead they just had lions. I remember the posters came out and they said, you know, they had the sort of the actor and the character name. Mm. It's like, and, and Beyonce Knowles was Nala. And it, it looks just like a photo of a lion. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like any special lion. Most just of the a actors, lion. Most of the actors aren't bringing a lot to they, it. They, so didn't, it doesn't really they didn't like color code the animals to distinguish them. Like it this one's just... got a purple necklace or something like that. Like nothing yeah, about nothing. it really stands out. Uh, they're just, th- they're just a, animals. One of the characters is a spoonbill bird. Now in the in animated version, you can give them big, expressive human eyes, move them to the front of the bird's head, and it looks like a human face. Mm, something I mean, something yeah. you can empathize with. Uh, the bird in this, it looks like a bird. Birds have eyes on the sides of their head because they're prey, so they can see in all directions. And in order to make eye contact with other animals, the birds have to kind of, the bird has to like lean its head back and forth a little Constantly bit. Constantly whip it around. And it's an awkward conversation. It looks like it's dying in every yeah. scene. 
Every animal looks dead. It's well, and, really and, weird. Which is for really them bringing things to life. Well, and it's really upsetting when, like, halfway through the movie, as we we all know, the Lion King, mm-hmm. Simba's father dies. In the cartoon, it's a cartoon lion, and that's really sad. Like a mm-hmm. lot of kids in a theater <laughs> would be crying when when Mufasa died in the original Lion King. But when you see not a cartoon lion die, but mm. a photorealistic lion die, and it looks like you're watching safari footage, mm. it becomes a different kind of upsetting. <laughs> it, it goes from being dramatically sad to genuinely morbid. Well, to morbid and maybe even a little bit distant, because when you watch those nature documentaries and you see animals die, it's like, oh, that's very sad, and your heart hurts a little bit, but then you just sort of say to yourself, this is the way nature operates. These animals are going to die, and we just just filmed this one. This is happening a thousand times a day all over the world. No, and it's sad, and you move on, but like, you know, here you're adding this extra dramatic emphasis to Mm. it, and it just feels really gross. Um, Mm. The the voice acting is not expressive enough, either. No, I think... They didn't hire voice actors to really sort of play up the drama in their voices. Uh-huh. They, they hired uh, live-action actors, for the most part. Uh, there, there's a couple of actors who make the most of this. Mm. Um, Seth Rogen and Billy Eichner uh, play Timon yeah. and Pumbaa. Uh, not in that order. Uh, they're good. And when they finally show up halfway through the film, you're like, yay, energy! Mm. Like, so, they've well, got in, some energy well, in this in, movie. In their voices, but we're still just looking at animal faces. But and there's I'll one, There's one close-up of the meerkat's face, which is supposed to be really manic because it's leaning really close to the camera, and it just looks like I was being attacked by a, a, a varmint. But at least the meerkat, you know, stands up on its hind legs. Mm. All of a sudden, you've got a little anthropomorphization. Yeah, but, yeah. like, that that level... Here's the thing that really pissed me off, because I actually am a fan of the original Lion King. No, well, now, I'm not, you and the rest of the world. Everybody no, no, loves I'm, that movie. I'm, I'm just saying I'm coming at it from a different angle. Um, but I'm not one of these people who thinks that original movies are sacred and every remake is a bad idea. Um, lots of great movies are remakes, and there's a lot that can be gained from retelling a story. You know, you can... The, Greta Gerwig fixed Little Women, a, a novel I didn't think was broken. There's, and she didn't even like change it all that much. It's still very, very faithful. So I'm not against the idea of remaking The Lion King so long as you have something to do. And the only thing they had to do was this technical exercise... Which undermines the movie. They're so dedicated to making it look realistic that they forgot to make it look good. <laughs> like, a lot of the movie like takes place at night, mm-hmm. and as a result, because they're trying to make it look realistic, you just can't see anything. Unless they create some arbitrary, contrived reason for there to be a fire. Mm. The song, Can You Feel the Love Tonight, takes place during the day. <laughs> because you couldn't see it otherwise. Mm. Maybe you just change the goddamn lighting so it looks good. When you compare... Well, if, and if, if you're hell-bent on keeping that song in the movie... Yeah. If you're going to remake the movie to the point where you're just going to re-sing the same songs again... Yeah. Then, yeah, set it at, do set some, it at night. Do something or that actually makes it work. cut that song. Well, no, that's a classic. They, they feel obligated to get And I get that. But, well, like, cut all the songs. I, it doesn't have to be a musical. Well, cut all the... I would have been fine with that mm. as well. Like, because the musical stuff, it just... You look at the original film, and I'm not going to say just because it's the original, it's better. But l- perfect example of this. Look at the original version of the villain song, Be Prepared. Mm. Which isn't even sung in this version. Uh, it's, it's talk sung, yeah. like Rex Harrison and My Fair Lady. The original Be Prepared uh, is the the villain is talking about how he's going to kill the king, he's going to kill Simba, he's going to take over the throne, mm. and he is going to enlist all of the hyenas, mm. 
mm. uh, to be his new stormtroopers. And it's a whole obvious Nazi metaphor to the point that he is jumping around on rocks in the middle of a volcanic explosion while hyenas are goose stepping across the screen. <laughs> it's incredibly vivid and colorful, and you cannot miss the point if you tried. The new one, he just sort of talks things to some hyenas on some sand. Mm-hmm. That's it. Mm. They don't have anything new to do with it. They don't have any v- verve. You didn't just like, okay, we're going to use technical wizardry to bring the Lion King to life in a way that you've never seen before. Mm. But that, all that technical wizardry did was kill it. Was make it flat and boring and not fun to look at. I, I initially, when I reviewed this movie on the wrap, my print review, it's on Rotten Tomatoes, is like a narrow fresh. Because right. I thought, as a technical exercise, it has some value. Mm. But the further I get away from it, the more pissed I am. <laughs> at just how like their, their desperation to use technology that they used fine in the Jungle Book. It's not like it needed that much more work. Mm. A, a and, Jungle and, Book, another film I didn't like. I actually like yeah. it fine because I think that one at least justifies the the use of it, and they know when to anthropomorphize the animals to tell a story. Like here, it the only reason for this movie to exist is to make money because they did the Lion King again. Yeah, yeah and like it, the technical exercise was kind of done already. They did it with the Jungle Book, re, re, just as much as Aladdin or or even worse, Beauty and the Beast. It just reeks of cynicism. Yeah, at least Aladdin. Uh, the re, Aladdin. At the very least, they cast some non-white people in it. Mm. At think at least it's they still it's still set in the white person's version of Arabia. But uh-huh. you know, yeah, no, there's a lot of, there's a lot going on <laughs> in that movie that doesn't work. But yeah. at least there's a reason to do mm. that one again. Here, it was just I, I don't like the movie. I, I yeah. that. Um, so that's my number three. But mm. uh, my be. number eight mm. is another biopic. Okay, uh, and it's one that really squeaked out. This is a movie that. Um, Everyone was talking about because it, it was a best-selling book, and there was going to get made for a long, 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 long time. And then, by the time it finally came out, no one gave a shit. It's the Professor and the Madman. Oh, this, this was you told me about this one. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember when you reviewed this one. Okay, so the Professor and the Madman is based off of the true story about the guy who was responsible for compiling the Oxford English Dictionary. Mm. Now, the Oxford English Dictionary, if you're unfamiliar with your dictionaries, uh, is the great English dictionary. They have every single word ever used in the English language. It is constantly being updated. Mm. And also, its history from its first known usage to today, and how it has evolved over the years and all the definitions. A, a friend of mine has one. It's they're, incredibly they're, expensive. They're, yeah, well, because it's it's volume after volume after volume. Yeah. Uh, you can get one. She that's was like, able to find a, a condensed version that was only two gigantic volumes. But you have to have a magnifying with glass. A magnifying, yeah, I can't read it without a magnifying yeah, glass because the yeah. print is so tiny. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. I actually really admire it. And. Um, <clears throat> Mel Gibson plays the guy who figured out how to make the Oxford English Dictionary, and oh, what the British had. actor, good, okay. yeah, and well, American, American raised in Australia. If oh, what's the he played a Scot? It's fine. I'm, no, no, no. I'm, 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 I'm not thinking, giving him too much grief. Oh, who was who was who was the second James Bond in theaters? What's his name? George right, Lazenby. George Lazenby. If George, George Lazenby can oh, be yeah. Bond, Gibson can be All whatever. Right. Anyway. Uh, he just figured out the way to do it was to crowdsource it. It's too big a job for one person. Mm. So we, they sent out a thing and said, hey, everybody, every time you see an interesting word, write it down. <laughs> mail it to us. Write, write, yeah. it, write it down. Write down where you found it and mail it to us, and we will consider if the Oxford English Dictionary. Mm. And that was how they were able to put it very slowly together. It's a clever idea. It okay. worked. 
However, the person who had the most time on their hands, who contributed the absolute more than any other individual, mm-hmm. was a murderer who was in an insane asylum. And who just happened to know a lot of words. Well, he just happened to have a lot of free time on his hands. He was a model. Oh, I guess so. He was a model patient for a long time. He had access to a lot of books. You're, you're That's all he did. That was his hobby. Yeah. Just like could, if I was in prison, I'd get a lot of reading done. Yeah. Now... That's an interesting historical anecdote, and it's my understanding that it's a pretty good book. The movie sucks. <laughs> All right, so we've got Mel Gibson as the dictionary guy. You got Sean Penn mm-hmm. as the quote unquote madman of the title. Um, and both of their stories are boring as hell. You have a story about a guy who's trying to make a dictionary, and you got a story of a guy who has a lot of time to help make a dictionary. Eventually, they just sort of nudge up against each other and go, oh. And then towards the end, you realize why this movie was actually mm-hmm. made, or why Mel Gibson was so gung-ho about it, because the big dramatic story is, oh no, people are going to find out that a convicted murderer helped create the Oxford English Dictionary. What a scandal. And that's when Mel Gibson gets to give speech after speech about how we shouldn't judge a person based on a couple of violent outbursts. Mm-hmm. Mel. Gibson. Made Sean, a movie. And Sean Penn. <laughs> and, and with Sean Penn mm. about how, how like how like great white men should not be judged based off the bad shit they do. Well, mm-hmm. uh-huh. So so my so self-serving is the phrase you might be groping that's for. That's a here? really, Maybe? really effective word. Well, it's more like it's where hyphen it, I guess. So I honestly mm. don't know what the Oxygen dictionary would call that one word or two, mm. but yeah. It's self-serving as fuck. <laughs> and on top of it all, it's not even interesting. I can handle self-serving if it's interesting. Mm-hmm. If it if it actually like exists for some other reason and I can enjoy it. But it's drab. It's, it's so drab. <laughs> and then when you finally get to a point where it's actually emotionally relevant, mm-hmm. you realize it's just Mel Gibson saying, you should have forgiven me by now. What yeah, crap is yeah. that? There's a reason this really flew under the radar, despite being based on a best-selling novel. Because mm. it sucks. <laughs> and those are the reasons why. Okay. What's your next film? Uh, my next film, I'm surprised I, I didn't rank this higher, actually, because this one got me into a lot of hot water this year. Oh. I wrote a review of Rambo Last Blood, oh. and... My review was quoted in Breitbart. Oh my god, I remember for, that. Yeah, for uh, as an indicator of how lefty politics are ruining Hollywood and how leftists are have infiltrated the film criticism racket. I, I also uh, gives me it actually didn't make my top ten. Oh, oh, it's an honorable mention, yeah. but like it's just like on some level it's a competent thriller, which I can't even say about most of my other movies. I, I suppose, so, but it's it's the grossest competent it, thriller. It is. I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with I think on mm. almost all your points here. But yeah, I also got a lot of flack uh-huh. for saying that. And listen, we did a whole podcast not that long ago about all the Rambo movies. Mm. They're a mixed bag. But uh, at be- the first one is a very good film. The first one's excellent. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I could say that about any of the sequels. Um, I think so. Rambo: First Blood, just real fast. Mm. First Blood was a story about uh, a Vietnam vet who is suffering from post-traumatic stress, uh, who is tortured into reliving and reenacting all of his violence mm. and and from the war. Yeah. Um, 
It's very harrowing. It's very thoughtful. It's it's great. Rambo First Blood Part 2 is about how war is awesome, and we're going to send Rambo back to Vietnam to, to win the to war win proper it, this time. To win it this time. It is, oh gosh, it is such a product of like that, that gung-ho Ronald Reagan 1980s American super soldier mentality. Which brought us to Rambo 3, mm. which is all about uh, Rambo uh, teaming up with... Um, the, the Afghanis. With the Afghanis mm. to end World War, to end the Cold War by killing all the Russians and rescuing his old mm. uh, commanding officer, uh, which is these are all fiercely political yeah. films. There's they all mean different things. And then we had uh, was it just Rambo? It was just, yeah. Then the fourth <laughs> film was just called Rambo, ah, and that was about <laughs> what, what country was that from? It was in Burma. It was Burma. That was about yeah. Rambo trying to convince Christian missionaries not to go to Burma because Burma is too shitty a place. Yeah. And then they go to Burma, and then Rambo kills everyone in Burma, and the Christian missionaries go, "Thank God for you, Rambo." Mm. And again, politics right on its sleeve. And then Rambo first, and this new Rambo New Blood comes out. Last Blood. But last, last Ram- Rambo, Ram- last- Rambo colon last blood. Too many bloods. There's <laughs> Rambo last blood comes out. They should have called, the called the third one Rambo middle blood. That would have been fine. Penultimate but, blood. But then this new one comes out and everyone's just like, what are you talking about? There's no politics in Rambo. Oh God. What okay. the fuck? First of all, yes. And first and second of all, yes. Uh, this is a, a fiercely political movie that kind of plays into a lot of the xenophobia that is in the discourse right now, particularly about... Mexico. Uh, this is a presidential administration we are uh, currently living through that demonizes de- Mexico. Demonizes Mexico. Demonizes Mexicans. Demonizes all immigrants, really, and wants to build a wall on the the, the Mexican border. And this is a film about evil, evil, like cartoonishly evil Mexican drug cartel guys who want nothing more than to kidnap women and to sell them into sexual slavery. Does that really happen? Yes. Is the murder rate high in Mexico? Yes. Is this a responsible way to depict those crimes? No. No. Because it, it plays you get Papa USA. Yeah, we got old, a, a big, old, big yeah. old white guy who whose trauma, by the way, is treated as a superpower, which is some mm-hmm. BS, especially when you look at the first movie. Yep. Uh, he's moved to this little tiny shack just like just over the Mexican border mm-hmm. where he has been digging death tunnels just in case. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, For fun. It's he's his like, hobby. Like, yeah, like he's made his own like little personal ant farm that he's filled with death traps. Why has he done that? So we can have a climax at the end of the movie where he cuts off people's feet and heads. Uh, There's something to do with a human heart, uh, (laughs) which is totally awful and stupid. Uh, Yeah, it becomes, in in sort of a Saw movie sort of way, the gore is really exhilarating. The gore is pretty spectacular in this movie. If nothing else. But yeah, to use your phrase, it's Papa USA killing evil Mexicans for the point of making Americans feel good about hating Mexicans. Yeah. It is a morally repugnant movie. Yeah. It's not even well made. A lot of it is just sort of dull, and all of the crimes are just disgusting to behold, and not in, like, supposed to be like sort of shocking and repellent to the audience. I mean, just... They're unpleasant. They're unpleasant. I think yeah. the filmmakers were taking a little bit too much glee in it. There's a scene where Rambo has gone into Mexico, severed the head of like a drug lord and is driving back. And the shot oh, yeah. is of him driving back and he's already back in America and he's driving down the road and he throws the severed head out the window. It's like, ah, I'm done with this now. Did he have that in his lap the whole time? <laughs> 
Was it like on the seat next wanna, to him? In I want to hear, hear his like conversation with the separate yeah, I, I head as he's see driving that, along. I, I want to see that trip, like in Bring yeah. Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, where the the head is slowly rotting and he's picking flies off the bag, and yeah. you know, it's just we can see his his morality devolve. He's still treated like this completely peerless moral hero for being able to rip out human hearts. It's gross. It's, it's gross, such a bad movie. And again, Rambo is framed repeatedly. Mm. And again, sometimes con- contra- contrary to previous films in the series, as sort of the moral heart of America, where yeah. initially we failed our veterans. Mm. And then um, we need to give our veterans a hero and respect them and give them a victory in Vietnam. And then we need to, uh, you know celebrate what we're doing to end the cold war and we need to uh take arms against human rights abuses and mm. other countries and and then here it's just like we really need to uh, it, mexico is bad yeah. apparently i had a lot of people telling me like oh well you like sicario day of the soldado why do you like this and i'm like i didn't <laughs> i i criticized it for the same reason you're not even reading my reviews well, there's a really uh-huh. weird streak in some mainstream movies to just Mm -hmm. sort of try to cater like the new death wish was like this as well to try to cater to fear and anger not to examine it not to question it not to use it as sort of a talking point for the many horrors going on in the world but just to just sort of reaffirm Mm -hmm. the negativity in the discourse and this movie is Part of that, but it's in some respects, it's more irresponsible because it is trying to tell you, no, we're simple, dumb, fun violence, right? And I'm mm. like, no. Well, it, it it's doing two things. It's saying yes, everything you are feeling, all these these uh, all your xenophobic feelings are justified. But if anybody criticizes you, then it's just dumb action. So yeah. so which so is it reinforcing your politics or is it just dumb action? Mm-hmm. I th- I think it's both. One, one of the, and I hate both of those things. Many many of the people who who mm. emailed me about this movie were saying yeah, I, like I got some, some I, pretty some really, harsh email like personal emails. Some of the emails some of the emails I got were people just saying, but that's how it really is. Yeah, and I'm yeah. like, mm, that's how it really is. You're finding in worst case scenarios, and I'm not saying there mm. aren't more than enough. Yeah. But, like, you're, Rambo doesn't have a high opinion of Mexico. There are people in the film who are from Mexico or, uh, or, or Mexican-American uh, who are treated with more respect, but only to the extent that they are victims or mm. that they need to be protected by Rambo. Yeah. So you're either the worst human beings in the world mm. or you're protected by Papa USA. Right. That's right. not really good representation. Mm. I'm sorry. That's it's an irresponsible movie in a lot of ways. A lot of ways. A lot of ways. And I hate it. I I get it. I get it. It's only I, and it's only it's, the seventh worst film of the year. I so. know. I hear you. Yeah. I mean, it didn't even make my top ten. Uh, my next film uh, is a movie that it's from a franchise that I'm really hit or miss on. Okay. But boy, was this miss! It was Rob oh. Zombie's Three from Hell. Oh, that's on my runners up. Yeah. Mm. Three from Hell is the latest mm. film in a series. Uh, it was House of a Thousand Corpses. Which is Rob Zombie's first feature film. Yeah, which is. I'm not a huge fan, but credit where credit is due. 
he throws everything into that movie. Like, if that was the only movie he ever made, it's like, my God, I'm going to put everything in it. I'm going to put, like, a sideshow, a roadside attraction that's also a horrifying, evil, murderous uh, freak show. I'm going to put in, like, a whole bunch of Texas Chainsaw Massacre stuff. I'm going to have a cyborg living in an underground dwelling full of monsters or some shit. Like, it's all in there. It it feels like watching a bunch of Rob Zombie music videos. He even does a cover of Brick House. Oh, yeah. Which is just on the soundtrack, and they dance to almost the entirety of. Yeah. It's a good uh, cover, by the way. <laughs> uh, the next film in the series is a significant improvement. It's uh, The Devil's Rejects, which it's basically... Still Zombie's best film, I'd say. Eh, Lords of Salem, for well, me. Well, but I like Lords of Salem, th- too, They're both good. Yeah. I, I, I'm not anti-zombie. I like a lot of his movies, mm-hmm. actually. But uh, Devil's Rejects basically says, hey, what if we took the family from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but we made, like, like we made them the Wild Bunch? Yeah. You know, like we treated it like a Western where they're being tracked by someone who's maybe even worse than they are. And all of their horrible things that they're doing are all part of this gritty landscape mm-hmm. of American violence. And how how their inability to care is treated as this weird kind of twisted superpower. Right. This like survival trait. Yeah, I, I don't think it's an amazing movie, but I do think it's a good one. Mm-hmm. And I think it justifies itself and it, it yeah, has I, a better sense of tone and pacing and, and it works. Yeah, and I, so I, I rewatched it. When I saw Three from Hell, they actually played it as a double feature with The Devil's Rejects. Yeah. And it, it holds up amazingly well. It's, a good it's film. actually quite a good film. It's the, a very the whole good film. the whole free bird sequence at the end is it's, just really grand. It's, it's mega indulgent, yeah. but I think um, he earns it. it. It's fun, and you know, if you're gonna play free bird, <laughs> see, we were talking about how Rambo is sort of like this dark heart of American violence. That's what Rob Zombie's saying, but he's not, he doesn't approve of them, even though he does kind of like them. And I think that's the strength of free, of the Devil's Rejects. Mm. He he. <sighs> hates and loves them simultaneously. He doesn't approve of what they do, but he does appreciate their resilience. Yeah. And and kind of how they are simply themselves and there's a strength to that. Well, my favorite thing my favorite scene with them all the time is them just hanging out and talking yeah, about movies yeah. that they like and when they're all of a sudden they seem human mm. which is why the third film in the series took a long break between films mm. uh 3 from Hell doesn't work. Mm. It doesn't work for a variety of reasons. On one hand, uh, the late great Sid Haig was in ailing health, and so he couldn't be in most of the movie, and they had to sort of shoehorn in another character in order to justify the three in the title. (laughs) I don't know why you bother. Just make it about two of them. I don't care. Um, Not that Richard Brake is a bad actor. I actually really like Richard Brake, but he doesn't need to be in the movie. He's a fine to have, but yeah. Yeah, I I think Richard Brake is a really great character actor. He's really great in that Rob Zombie movie, 31. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, he doesn't... Oh, that's right. He plays Doomhead. Yeah, Yeah, he's like like the main villain. villain. 31's actually really ultra prurient and... and, So dumb. It's so dumb, but I kind of admire it where Mm -hmm. it's just a bunch of carnies are kidnapped on Halloween and if they can survive to the end of Mm -hmm. Halloween night and kill all the murder clowns that are sent after them, they'll get to live in a, in a steam room maze which looks like an amusement park I, and I, part of Malcolm me respects McDowell is in it a part of me respects the shit out of that movie is, yeah. uh, but yeah Three from Hell it's it's sloppy because they kind of had to rewrite it on the fly and I'm sympathetic with that like mm. we gotta make the movie Sid Haig I, I interviewed Rob Zombie about this Sid Haig had to leave kind of last minute and they mm. tried to do their best to work it around him I sympathize with that but even so 
the first two movies in the series kind of had a reason to exist. The first one was Rob Zombie kind of proving himself and playing mm-hmm. with cinema for the first time, and it doesn't entirely work, but it's him trying really, really hard. And then The Devil's Rejects is a really focused and smart and, and well-made Western horror hybrid where it's him actually like coming into his own as a filmmaker and trying to make a statement about violence and this iconography. And Three from Hell just feels like, shit, let's do another one. Well, it, it turns to that weird sort of, uh, like, post-Grindhouse movie. It feels like... Do you ever see that movie Feast? That I was, did, that actually. Was a I never saw the sequels. Pro- it was a product but... of uh, Project Greenlight, which yeah, was... Fe- I like, kind of liked Feast, actually. Uh, but Feast was one of those films that was trying to go over the top rather deliberately, and not because the filmmakers were interested in that. They were just sort of trying to do silly when they weren't silly. I just thought it worked well um, enough for what yeah, it was, but if, fair enough. And uh, especially the sequels, Feast 2 and Feast 3, where they're just like, and here, here's the monster having sex with a cat. It's like, oh, oh come, come on. on. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even need to see it and go, oh, come one, on, one of them does, I don't remember if it's Feast 2 or Feast 3, but it has like, a, in the last like five seconds of the movie, and I'm going to spoil it because it's kind of a selling point, mm. but uh, the, the one remaining person is sort of wandering down the street, having escaped the small town with all the aliens, and they're caked in blood, and they're like, oh, oh there's two people. One is wandering along, and there's like, okay, we're, we're finally free, we're finally free, and all of us sudden the uh, one of them is crushed by the foot of a 30-foot robot which has never been mentioned before <laughs> and the robot just sort of staggers off and and that's where the movie ends and we're left with this sort of big what the fuck moment <laughs> i appreciated that it's kind enough. of like this big random death of a 30-foot robot but let's get back them. to three from hell Three from Hell has that vibe. It's like, okay, we're going to hide out in Mexico because we have a really small budget and we have to keep it in one location. So this is one of those movies that's kind of straining against its budget. It takes place in, like, a hotel room and a living room, and there's not a lot of... A prison, but it seems pretty fake. Yeah, there's not a lot of visual variety to it. And they're really trying to add visual variety because all of a sudden there's, like, this army of luchadors with machine guns, and it's like this... This okay, should you, be you've, fun. You've skipped way beyond any grit that you were trying to have and just gone for goof. And it doesn't and, even and that doesn't even make any the, the, yeah. the setup for why they're suddenly being hunted by a luchador armada, which mm. again, The Devil's Rejects versus the Luchador Armada is a movie I want to see. Give it that title, <laughs> and I'm interested. But they just like they half-heartedly just, oh, and by the way, we we killed a guy from this gang during mm. our escape. You didn't want to show that and make it like a thing, mm-hmm. like actually, like really set up. Because like Danny Trey was in it for like sixty, not even sixty seconds, sixty half seconds. He's in it for thirty seconds just to set this up <laughs> later, and they don't even do anything with it. It's even, so frustrating. Danny Trejo, who's been in a lot of bad B movies, even mm-hmm. he seems like kind of a little embarrassed to be there. He's, there is a favor, I'm guessing. Yeah. Like, and, and then the other thing that frustrates me is a Sherry Moon zombie. Mm. Her character is completely ruined. To- totally, yeah. totally bizarre new take on the character. First off, I think Sherry Moon Zombie is a really good actor. And mm. I think if you look at Lords of Salem or 31, you mm. see she's got a lot of talent and screen mm. presence, and she could really do some really interesting roles uh, when she's given them. Mm. Um, Baby Firefly, uh, her character from the first movie, didn't have a lot. Devil's Rejects gave her more to do. She got really interesting. And here, she has devolved into weird cackle mania. Yeah, she... Except towards the end when she just suddenly stops for no reason. It's like she... 
It's so weird. It's so. It's like she forgot how to play that part. She's played the role I mean, twice I, before, and now she, it's like I don't blame her. I can't entirely blame her. Rob Zombie's directing it. Yeah. He was there the whole time as well. You know, mm-hmm. like and, it's and, just hard to say what Sherman, happened here. And what I love about Rob Zombie, I think, his strengths. You saying what people are just sort of hanging out. He is allowed. Not only people to just sort of have conversations and be sort of warm and casual and really downbeat with one another, but he also does that with older characters, yeah. people who are uh, like in their 50s or 60s, who are a little bit worn out. And he has a real love for character actors, and he loves giving them meaty stuff. Yeah, yeah. And like, Sid lets... Haig has one and a half scenes in this movie, mm-hmm. and he has a great speech. Mm-hmm. He's really good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a good way to go out, actually. He, he allows them to like have flaws and in-jokes, and I feel there's a really a real great sort of organic chemistry between his older characters. I would love to see him do sort of a Mike Lee type film like another year where it's just old people talking about oh, their lives that'd be great that i think he would make i think he would actually do a really good job with something like yeah. that you know what here he's not s- here he doesn't do any of that it's you, just all of the crazy stuff you know that's not interesting do? Hmm. a remake of the greatest show on earth <laughs> like just like the real grit like, in like how circuses he was raised run. in circuses so i know he could do that really I, well i think that you look at that movie and it was <clears> best picture the greatest show <clears> on earth and you watch it now and it's like it's okay, I guess, but uh, I don't see why it's best picture. Like, it uh, beat High Noon? What? We're, we're trying to pay homage to DeMille, who was on his way out. And I understand and, and, that, and, and, but also, and also time, circuses, which were kind of dying out. It was a, I, nost- it was a nostalgia I, I get it. It's just it's yeah. just not a particularly interesting film. No, it's not. I feel like Rob Zombie could take the basic nuts and bolts of that, which mm. is a circus struggling to, say or to survive in an era where what's the point of a circus anymore, and actually have something to say about it and actually have some insight. Mm. I would love to see Rob Zombie do that. Where, where all of the carnies... Rob Zombie like, really, get an Oscar for doing that. You, you, you bet he would. I think uh, if, if he can resist his urge to have his carnies murder people... Yeah. Then he'd do great. Yeah, I think. Look, Rob, I think if you, Rob, you one, gotta you gotta pull this off in a PG thirteen, buddy. You gotta. That's the one <laughs> well, rule. It can be R. Like people can have like affairs or cosset people no, behind stage. But I think you do that in PG thirteen. Maybe so. Some grit without it. I being think. I think. Well, I think there'd be a great scene of like all of the carnies off duty, just sort of hanging out, drinking beers, and cussing and telling sex stories. And I think that would be a great scene, but it would have to be an R rated scene. Oh no, fair enough. Yeah. You've convinced me. Uh, What's your next film? My next film, the sixth worst film of the year, uh, is one you actually kind of liked. So I oh. apologize for this. Okay, interesting. What? Um, director Jim Jarmusch can do a lot of good. <laughs> He's also made a lot of crap. <laughs> the Limits of Control is probably still his worst film, but this is in the running for one of his worst films. It's The Dead Don't Die, his zombie epic where he didn't have any ideas, and he was just sort of relaxing through it, and he got to the end of the movie, and I said, why am I here, Jim? <laughs> Why did you make me do that? I'm going to let you have I, all the time you want before I rebut this. I, I like this movie. I don't so love this movie. It didn't make the best of the year or nothing, but I like this movie. You can tell he's trying to do a little bit something self-aware, uh, because uh, Bill Murray and Adam Driver play the sheriffs in a small town where there is a very slow, because it's a Jim Jarmusch film, <laughs> outbreak of zombies. And the zombies are all kind of lazy zombies, because it's a Jim Jarmusch film. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I was introduced to the word Jarmushian relating to laziness before I even knew who Jim Jarmusch was. <laughs> laziness, uh, by the way, not necessarily a derogatory term in Jarmusch. It's just his characters uh, maybe, are very maybe lackadaisical. Not, maybe not lazy. Somnambulist might be a better yeah. word. Sleepy. Just, yeah, everybody's very sleepy. And uh, I, I think he was trying to make a comedy because there's a scene between Bill Murray and Adam Driver as the sheriffs of the small town listening to the theme song to the movie talking about how this is the theme song to the movie that they are in. It doesn't feel scripted. It feels like they're kind of making it up. 
Bill Murray and Adam Driver are just sort of spitballing together and they're just mm. sort of lazily going through the scene. It's not funny. There's no laughs in that scene. Maybe that's the point that it's a comedy without laughs. That's a stupid point. <laughs> There's a, a character who's a comic book owner who supposedly knows a lot about uh, like zombie lore because he owns a comic book, a, a comic, comic book store. store. Yeah. Um, his knowledge doesn't come into the play into the plot in any sort of significant, significant way. Tilda Swinton wanders in from another movie. Clearly, clearly she's instructed. So weird. Clearly instructed that she was going to be in some sort of action thriller. She's because a she samurai plays, uh, mortician hacker. Yeah, <laughs> she's a computer hacker samurai mortician who gets to sort of wield her blade in this badass sort of way in this scene that belongs in another movie. I love I love her so much in this movie, dude. I'm so sorry. The, the zomb- there's some sort of comment that the zombies only go after sort of the lazy things that were keeping their minds numb in life. So an yeah. alcoholic dies, and when she is revived, all she can think of is drinking wine. Yeah, she says like Merlot. Yeah, it's Chardonnay. 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 And yeah. she's played by Carol Kane, and I love Carol Kane. I love the whole cast. The cast is in, great. In other movies, the cast is impeccable. Jim Jarmusch doesn't commit to any of these ideas. This is a film yeah. about being non-committal. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I love everything you're saying right now. He started eight movies and then just gave up and went home. And everybody said, okay, that's it, right? What? What, Is this going to end? Is anything going to happen in this movie? Here's my thing thing with this movie. It's dull and it's unfunny and it's insufferable. Okay. It is dull and it's insufferable, but it's funny. (laughs) Here's what I'm going to say. Here's my my take on The Dead Don't Die. All right. Uh, The Dead Don't Die is not... I, I, for me, I, I don't mm-hmm. think it's a riff off of contemporary zombie movies like mm-hmm. Dawn of the Dead, Walking Dead, 20 Days Later, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. For me, this feels like a riff off of films like Night of the Iguana. All right. Or, uh, uh, or the giant Gila monster. Sorry. Oh, not, giant Gila monster. I was, I was confused because like it's a giant. Drama? There's yeah. a giant iguana uh. and it's at night, but that one's actually called the giant Gila monster. But anyway. Or like the giant Gila monster or Plan 9 from Outer Space where mm. ostensibly something really exciting is happening, uh-huh. but the people making the movie <laughs> are more interested in dull dialogue sequences mm. and padding out the length because we don't have any money. Like, that's the kind of movie that I think Jim Jarmusch is sending up here. And when you watch it in that Coleman Francis sort of way, <laughs> and it's just like, okay, there's zombies happening, but instead... We will be talking about, I don't know, I'm trying to remember like a specific dialogue scene. Yeah, like so we, you can't remember well, much, No, 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 because no, all the stuff I can remember is actually like really like distinctive. Mm. Like there's a part, you mentioned like they, they talk about they're listening to the soundtrack to the movie. Mm. Um, there's a part in the movie where uh, Bill Murray says, oh, I should have retired by now. Mm. And then uh, Adam Driver... Bill, Bill Murray saying that no, out loud. Like, yeah. and, Bill, and, no, and Adam Driver's like, why haven't you retired yet? And Bill Murray's like, are we are we ad-libbing? What are you doing? <laughs> you would know that. We've known each other a long time. Mm. He's like, you're right, I would have known that. I'm sorry. Like, he's just completely deconstructing this whole lackadaisical Jim Jarmuschian style. Mm. And just making it like as lazy as it possibly can be because it's being held up by zombies. Mm. I find that funny. I find it funny that he is not deconstructing the horror genre so much as he is de- deconstructing Jim Jarmusch. Mm. Mm. I laughed. I thought that was there was a wit to that. All I right. thought that it's it's a it's a dry movie certainly, but mm-hmm. I found it charming. 
So I'm, I'm not going to go head over heels in defending it. I think uh, all everything you're saying th- is accurate. I, I, I just think, liked it for those reasons. I think this is Jim Jarmusch not committing to anything. I think there's no personality. And when he doesn't have a point, he really doesn't have a point. Mm-hmm. Um, All right. It's not as bad as The Limits of Control. I haven't seen The Limits that, of Control. Is, that see. is really, really difficult to watch. All right. And Let's... it really doesn't make any sense. I... And also, there's, like, violence and nudity in it as well, so it, like, has an edge that it doesn't earn. I, look, all I can say is mm. that I was on the film's wavelength and I left. All right. And I, li- and I like Jim Jarmusch movies. I'm sure, not so coming I. down on him, but he is capable of some crap, and this is crap. All right. My numbers... By the way, everything after what we got here, yeah. like, I, I'm... Top five. I, well, this is top six, but... Yeah, everything from here on out, I'm just pretty pissed about. Mm-hmm. Uh, my number six, and I'm actually surprised it's not higher than this, is Star Wars: The Rise of Skywalker. Oh Speaking wow! Of Adam okay, Driver, yeah. Um, Star Wars: The Rise of Skywalker. We're picking on a few big blockbusters. Anyway, I'm not picking yeah. on it. I think this is fair. I think this is fair criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, Star Wars. I'm going to say this right now. Mm-hmm. Star Wars is a hit or miss franchise. Don't at me. <laughs> like it, it is. Like uh-huh. the, I think the original trilogy is varying degrees of great. Mm-hmm. Um, I, like that, I like that first one a lot. Yeah. Kinda, uh, most people like the second one best. Uh-huh. Uh, Jedi has great stuff in it. it it's, it's got great monsters. I think I a, love the monsters. I, in that I love the conclusion mm-hmm. with uh, uh, Luke and Vader. I think that whole bit is great. Uh, the, mm-hmm. I think it ends pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, the Ewok movies are 50-50. <laughs> <laughs> the prequels are not good, although I think it's easy to romanticize them because they were trying to tell a big story and they had oh. some political underpinnings. I love that. Uh, in, in a way, the Empire Strikes Back and the Star Wars Holiday Special kind of cancel each other out. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Neither of them exists now. There you go. Um, and uh, and then the Disney stuff is really hit or miss as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm not shocked that the last Star Wars movie wasn't the best Star Wars movie. I am shocked that it was it feels so incomplete. Yeah. This is a giant corporate yeah. thing that you, at the very um, least, like, say what you will about the Marvel movies and how mm. they're kind of homogenized, but there's a baseline standard of quality where they've never dipped below, like, Thor the Dark World, which is not a good movie, <laughs> but it's also not the worst thing ever, and you can watch it and you'd be like, eh, it's basically mm. functions. Mm. Like, this is pretty bad. It's... It contradicts a lot of the elements of the previous film, which I know some people criticize The Last Jedi for doing, but The Last Jedi didn't contradict anything. It just took things in an unexpected direction. This flat-out contradicts stories we've seen before, mm. which is not the way you tell a serialized narrative with other people. You have to go yes mm. and, well, and then if, move on. Even if you go no but and you undo something, if you're doing something interesting, like mm. if, if you were so attached to this really fascinating idea that you're willing to idly resurrect a character or yeah. uh, you know ignore a plot point I'm going to be forgiving mm. the problem is uh, the rise of Skywalker takes absolutely no risks does nothing daring with the narrative or with Star Wars mm-hmm. or with any of the characters or anything that was set up before it falls back on the blandest type of horrendous nostalgia yeah. that this new Disney resurrection of Star Wars has announced itself to be. Yeah, it's it's basically uh, just we're going to go back to the original uh, series as much as we possibly can, mm-hmm. even though it doesn't even make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. We are going to shove all of our characters into this endless serialized MacGuffin hunt, which we did not need to have it take place in three parts. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just padding, and I'm like, your movie's already overstuffed. We're yeah. going to add new villains. Like, we're like, mm-hmm. hey, you know General Hux and how we've set him up to be like the next bad guy underneath the... 
uh, Kylo Ren. We're going to add another Hux who, when Hux dies halfway through, mm-hmm. can just be the new bad guy who dies at the end. Why is Richard E. Grant in this movie? I'm, There's so I'm much glad, stuff in here that doesn't work. I'm glad he is. I hope he got a big, hefty paycheck. Well, I also but, hope yeah. he got a big, hefty paycheck. But, like, I, I, I'm not concerned about his garage where he's going to build with the Star Trek money. I'm concerned about how this you Star Wars money... You said Star Trek. I know. I'm concerned about how the Star Wars movie plays mm-hmm. out, where it feels... Just a big old jumble mm. of messy ideas, and a lot of the things that they bend over backwards to try to do, like let's use existing footage of Leia and try to mm. keep her in the film, even though every scene she's in is mega awkward because mm. none of her dialogue belongs together in these scenes, and they're fighting to make it seem like she belongs mm. there, but every time she's there, you're reminded mm. that she's not. So half the movie doesn't work. Yeah. I, I I said this when we reviewed uh, the Rise of Skywalker, but when Rogue One came out, how disappointed I was. I um, I'm not a Star Wars guy. It's not like I was looking forward to like Star Wars doing any one particular thing, but I was disappointed when it was announced that they're deliberately not going to do anything. And I feel that's what that was sort of like the mission statement of Rogue One. It's kind of the mission statement of uh, uh, The Force Awakens as well. It's like, we're going to go do Star Wars, and it's going to be a lot like the old Star Wars. We're going to yeah. do similar plot points, similar characters. But I'm willing to forgive that movie a little bit because it had been a while since a Star Wars film had come out. Mm-hmm. They were kind of reestablishing a tone with an entire feature film. Sure. Okay. You're, and, and the announcement was going to be, and you're going to have indefinite Star Wars films one every year. That was in the press. So I had that in my mind. Okay. You're reestablishing a tone. The next film, you're going to do something interesting, right? Okay, we're going to take a whole new set of characters, and we're going to set it exactly around all the plot points you know. Everything is going to be nostalgia imagery. Mm. There's going to be no actual characterization. We're going to try to get all of our dramatic power from stuff you know. In fact, even even that uh, movie where like, we're killing people off, mm. it's the safest possible way to do that because, because they can't they're survive all, anyway. They're all new characters, yeah. So well, they, they're not they even new. Die. They're new, and they never showed up again, so mm. we know they're not important anymore. Exactly. Eric go, their so deaths were it preordained, was, it was so it felt the, really safe. It was the safest possible thing they could have done, and I was angry watching that movie. Yeah. It was a relief when The Last Jedi came out and they finally had a character say, let's let all this old Star Wars shit die out. It's like, oh, finally! Okay, now we're taking things in a new direction. Then they did another nostalgia piece with a young Han Solo adventures, which was bland and boring and really ugly to look at. Mm. And now we're just falling back on the same crap again. But this, but say what you will about The Force Awakens mm. and how it was, you called it the Tiny Toon Adventures of Star Wars, yeah. and you're right. It was a real movie. Like, it actually had pacing and character development. Yeah. It was repetitive, but mm. it worked, and I was fine with that. Here, it's just a cacophony of bullet points, yeah. and a lot of, they, they don't, like, have enough connective tissue. There's not a lot of emotional, real humanity in it, because everyone's just racing to finish this movie. I honestly think that making the new Star Wars trilogy be a trilogy was a mistake. Mm-hmm. I think that if I think you're this trying to rush that they, the, that they need to, to come into in an ending. Th- well, that they need to come in threes. Why? Yeah, why do they need to come in threes? They don't now. Like it's completely arbitrary. Well, like, in fact, let me ask you this: They made Star Wars, and after they made the first one, they changed the title, like to have that Episode Four at the beginning. Yeah, and I think they did that when I think when the Empire Strikes Back came out, they said it was Episode Five. It was something like and that, and so yeah. they retroactively called Star Wars Episode Four something like that, something yeah. like that. Yeah. So, and I think the whole idea was 
we're being dropped into the middle of a narrative. It's like catching up with a serial when you're a kid and you haven't seen the first couple chapters. Right. But you're getting all the exciting stuff anyway because they're serials and they all kind of play yeah, and they're as little relatively mini, easy mini action along. dramas themselves. Which, fun fact, I actually yeah. saw Empire first. Oh, and it worked okay. great. But yeah, I'm sure <laughs> it it's fine. It's a great movie. Yeah, I, I, I love it. The yeah. idea should be that they all function by themselves. I would love, I love that, yeah. that instead of Star like Star Wars, let's say he the plan was to have that be called Episode Four, and the next one was the next one was Episode Nine. Oh, that would have been cool. And we're like skip, skipping around. That might have been, kind of get, that might have like, been yeah. too avant-garde to, to really play, but I love the Maybe idea. Maybe so. That would have been great, though. Yeah. Or, or, you know, when it comes, and when it came time, it's like, okay, now we're going to fill out I every single number. I kind of like to show somebody, because a lot of people talk about, like, the right order to see Star Wars now. Like, do you watch oh, the original God, trilogy yeah. and then the new trilogy? Do you watch it mm-hmm. one, two, three, four, five? I would love to see, just once, just for as an experiment, someone mm-hmm. who's never seen Star Wars before, and you completely jumble the order. Yeah, just like randomly. You, like you start with Return of the Jedi, oh. then you go to Attack of the Clones, then you go to Rogue One. Mm. Like just completely randomize it. I would just be curious to see how it plays. Yeah, it'd be if, fun if, if at all. Because it a might, lot, a lot might these, not, but it'd be fun. A lot of these later films definitely not because they're all bank on stuff you know already. Yeah, presumably. Uh, yeah, but anyway, it's a big, it's a big old mess. And unlike a lot of these movies. Mm. There's no excuse. It's a hmm. big, giant corporate product. It was supposed to be safe, and I could have handled safe if it was competent, but it's not. The hmm. movie doesn't work. Yeah, well, the characters don't oh, work. The plot doesn't hmm. work. The ending is laughable. The, the point I was going to make is that they got to Return of the Jedi, and then they just stopped making Star Wars films after that. Yeah, except for a couple uh, of Ewok movies. A couple. Yeah. Well, they made like they moved to TV, and there were some TV series, and that was sort of where Star Wars was going to go, I guess. Maybe the, yeah. the interest had run out at that point. Yeah, there was books and comics, but that was about it. Was there any reason for them to have not made a film after Return of the Jedi? Like, immediately after the events of Return of the Jedi, um, with those same characters. Well, with the same characters, a lot of them were done. Like, Harrison Ford wanted to move on. Yeah. Um, in fact, there was talk about killing off Han Solo. Mm-hmm. Uh, even, he, he'd, he'd wanted that character to die he, so many times. He had. Um, no, they but, were done. There was, there, was ju- there was talk of prequels mm-hmm. for so long, but Just no one Re- knew what Return they were going to be Return of the Jedi was, them, is, so. was such a... Forgive me for saying this, but comparatively, such a bad movie... That, I, I mean, it, ma- it made money, but I think uh, it's a fine movie, but you look yeah. at it, it's just sloppy. It's a bit of a good, step down, but, yeah. but I do think it mostly works. Mm. But uh, I, I, there's nothing magical about there having be, have been three of them. No. And people didn't start referring to them as a trilogy until years after the fact. Like, I wasn't, people I don't, didn't I wasn't say, really paying attention when, when, in the when, 80s. You, know, you, look, you read old reviews from like the 1980s. People weren't referring to the Star Wars trilogies. It was this magical three and triune. I think it was, think it was when uh, they started coming out on home video and you could buy the whole set. You could buy all three at once. I think that's yeah, when they, they started, started really The Star Wars it. trilogy. There's the three movies that came out before. Yeah. But because of that, because of the home video marketing, now there's this magical idea that these films have to come in threes. So... George Lucas made one, two, and three. They are a unit, and now yeah. we have these other ones, the the uh, seven, eight, and nine, that are supposed to function as a single unit. Make a tenth. Why not? Yeah, I'm gonna fine with it. I don't 12. care. Just like, have that story. I want to see. Make I want to see more Daisy want. Ridley. I love Ray. I love these. Yeah. I love Poe. I love these characters. Yeah. I want to see them. I don't want to see them like forced into this really arbitrary conclusion that doesn't feel natural mm. or thematically appropriate anymore. I just want to see him do cool Star Wars stuff. Last yeah. Jedi was full of cool Star Wars stuff. Mm. Force Awakens is full of cool Star Wars stuff. 
Rise of Skywalker is full of really disappointing Star Wars stuff. <laughs> like, really just Star Wars stuff that I don't buy or like or get excited by. Mm-hmm. That's kind of it, really. I don't need to say more, but uh, on top of it all, it just doesn't work. we got to move on. What's your yeah. next film? Uh, my next film, what is it? number five. Oh, this, uh, this was a nice disappointing film <laughs> because I kind of liked the first two films that preceded it, and it's M. Night Shyamalan's Glass. Oh, this didn't make my list. No, I think Glass is awful um, because it, it's... I think it's a big disappointment. I don't know about awful, but okay, let's uh, go. It. It, it involves the characters from the movie Unbreakable, which mm-hmm. uh, M. Night Shyamalan made in 2000, around there. Yeah, right uh, after Sixth Sense. Right after Sixth Sense. A lot of people saw it, thought it was kind of a step back from Sixth Sense. I thought it was really quite good, actually. I think it was a little ahead it of deals, its time in how it dealt with comic book tropes. Yeah, it deals with like superhero lore in this really interesting, kind of depressive way that mm-hmm. I really uh, admire, the, that he kind of took a lot of the action and flash out of superhero ideas. And this was before superheroes were even a thing. Well, he made, he made so, like, it's not about being a superhero. It's finding out you should have been a superhero and you've wasted your life. Yeah. yeah. That's so the bit that I th- really it's, connected it's, to. I thought a, that was great. There's a lot of, of spite and pain and regret in Unbreakable, but it's a superhero story. Yeah. And and I think it's really well told. Um, I, did, then, it's, I still think the ending kind of sucks. He, but he, like, he, did, he did some uh, critically reviled films. A lot of people dogpiled on, on him because he did like sort of fan properties that people were not so keen on. He only did one of those, but let's be honest here, Last Airbender stinks. It's not a good film. Yeah. I I defend it to a degree, but it's not, it's like one step of defense. It's not like a huge defense. And I assure you, if if you had watched the show, you would seem like, did he watch it? Like, this doesn't make any sense. I I don't care how badly he he adapted it. He mispronounced the character's names. I I think he just made an uninteresting film. That's that's the bigger crime. Imagine, imagine if, here's M. Night Shyamalan, Uh, like, thing is, imagine if you watch Star Wars The Force Awakens and all of a sudden, for no good reason, mm. uh, it's Luke Skywalker. Yeah, yeah. Luck, Luck Skywalker. <laughs> like they just all of a sudden called him mm. that, and we're like, "What are you doing?" Of course, if, if, if I didn't it, get that wrong, if he's playing um, homage to like the the sloppiness of those old serials, that would have been kind of funny, maybe. Might and, have been and, kind of funny, but no, sort of way. Not, anyway, moving uh, on. Glass. But yeah, then he made a few films that a lot of people didn't like. But then he kind of came back with a film called The Visit, which I think is really quite good I about l- little kids being stalked by their grandparents question mark it's a creepy uh, film it's, like it's a really movie. creepy film and then he made another really excellent film called split which was a lot more comic booky and as it turns out in a post-credit stinger they linked it to unbreakable because the yeah. characters from unbreakable showed up in a post-credit stinger yeah so james mcavoy played a character who was kidnapping and mm. killing young women and it turns out he actually kind of had superpowers and was kind of a super villain and in the final twist at the end of the mm. movie you found out he existed in the same universe had, as unbreakable and i'm like was had, that's fun that had, was a really fun ending he had multiple personalities James McAvoy swings for the walls. He's so good in he's that movie. He's brilliant in those uh, movies. He's and, brilliant in Glass, even. And, and, the, like. yeah, and the idea is one of his personalities, which they refer to as the Beast, is uh, like can change his physiology enough that he's like super strong and he's climb walls, like, climb walls and stuff. Yeah. yeah, can claw through stuff. Yeah, he's, and it's really cool. It's, it's a really cool. cool idea. I think it's it a little irresponsible with, in how it deals with mental health, it, it but it's a horror movie. I'll let it slide. It doesn't understand bit. mental health at all, but I, I appreciate uh, the kind of comic booky version that he's telling. Yeah. And I think uh, the the messages of trauma are very real yeah uh then he decided to make the follow-up and it's like okay now he's going to deal with these kind of depressive stories of regret and trauma in a bigger broader context yeah you're gonna have bruce willis from unbreakable Mm. meet the bad guy Mm. from split what's gonna happen and and they're gonna connect it it with mr glass mm. the the, uh, samuel jackson character the evil mastermind from from unbreakable. unbreakable yeah and i'm like 
neat. I'm I'm down. I'm with you. And they're all gonna like be like in a mental institution together because well, people think a, that they sound like they, you think you're superheroes. Your guys are crazy. Yeah, and they I'm set like, it in a mental I institution. Like all of this. And, this is and they neat. and they cast Sarah Paulson as their therapist, and she's gonna be talking about how you people are all damaged. That's great. That's all a good this, premise. This is all awesome. I love all of this. Why is it a shitty action film then? It's so weird. <laughs> Why is it this? First of all. I don't mind when a filmmaker strains against a small budget. Mm-hmm. I mind when they strain against a small budget to the detriment of the filmmaking. Yeah. Uh, Bruce Willis clearly was only there for a couple days. Uh-huh. And he's and really not he's, invested. He's not invested in the character, and they edit around him in a way that's really distracting. There are scenes where he's walking around, he's wearing a big slicker, and you clearly can't see his face, so that's a stuntman. There's a scene where like, it's established in Unbreakable that when he's underwater or when he gets wet, he, he's not as strong. That's like his superhero Well, weakness. it's like his lungs are like the weakest part of yeah, him, so yeah, like yeah. he could drown. Like that So, sort of thing. in this, they turn that into this dumb action movie trope where they have him in a cell and they spray him with jets of water when he starts getting uppity. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene where he's falling on the floor and he's spitting out water, but his clothes are dry. <laughs> they're, not, they're not even trying. I didn't even catch that. Yeah, there's, there's like, <laughs> just, it's badly edited. The ideas they introduce that the superheroes are there to give hope to the rest of the world at large is something that's really kind of just sandwiched in right at the end. Oh, and, and it, I don't buy it for one fucking Yeah, and it doesn't either. make any sense no. within the broader context because of people the film. Because people would see that shit and just go, Oh, this is a cool viral video someone made. Like, there's yeah. no reason to, be- the, to believe the f- that. If you saw a picture of someone flying, like Uh-oh. Superman, you first thought wouldn't be, oh, wow, Superman's real. Mm. Your first thought would be, that's pretty good CGI. Yeah. That's how it would work. I don't mm. buy it at all. It doesn't make any sense. And, and who and who is benefiting from this? Because the villain and the hero's both want that information out. They just want it out in different ways. Which it's make weirdly sense. confusing at the and then, end. And then there's this big reveal that Sarah Paulson is part of this big cabal, which is the stupidest idea you could have introduced. Oh my god! Movie. And the way that they handle uh, it is so. Now, there is a comic booky tone to, uh, in a way, yeah. to Unbreakable and especially to Split, where there's this sort of like broadness to uh, elements of the drama. But the actual messages were actually very grounded. I think in those movies, the depression and the trauma. Mm-hmm. That's gone from Glass. It's just all of the stupid myth stuff, and it's told in the cheapest, worst way possible. It is the worst directing job Shyamalan has done. Ooh. And he's made some weird decisions in his career. Yes, I think you but, might be right. But I he, he at least right. is even when he's doing like making bad decisions. There's like some interesting idea being put. Like Lady in the Water is a horrible I'll, idea. I'll, I'll, I'll give you credit for Moxie. Like mm. I, I would but say yeah, between this and Last Airbender, where he just didn't seem invested in it at all and uh, no idea what to do with it. Yeah, here he is not interested. Nobody's no, interested. So Nobody weird. wants to be there, and I don't want to be there either. No, I'm with you. It doesn't mm. work. I, I didn't make my even my runners up, but you're right. It doesn't work. Mm. Um, all right. What's your number five? My number five is a movie I'm surprised... Every movie from here on out that isn't my number one, I'm surprised it's not my number one. (laughs) Like, these are all really bad. But Uh my number five is my number five because, in a way, I kind of respect its badness. Like, I kind of respect that the reason this movie is terrible is because they tried something and they failed so hard. (laughs) I am talking about... Serenity. Serenity is my number four. So okay. we're, <laughs> we're finally overlapping. Like finally, almost, almost exactly. Okay, so uh, Serenity is the latest film from is, is it Steve Knight. Steve Knight. Yeah. Steve Knight. Uh, he's he's made good stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote some films for David Cronenberg. Uh, he directed Locke, which is actually one of the better films of the decade. Uh, and he made a film. I'm. 
debating how much I should tell you. Uh, Matthew McConaughey stars as I think a, it's okay. okay. I'm going to go with uh, the the Dave White theory here uh-huh. that a spoiler is okay if it's a selling point. I'm going to be a little vague. All right. I'm going to be a little vague. Uh, Matthew McConaughey stars as a sweaty fisherman who has been trying to catch one really big mm. tuna. His hmm. entire life. And everything around him is everyone, people just asking, when are you going to catch that tuna? He's a leathery, alcoholic, uh, old man in the sea figure. Yeah. Uh, who sleeps with Diane Lane, and then like his wife, his ex-wife comes in, played by Anne Hathaway. Hmm. Uh, and she says, I want you to kill my new husband, because he's beating your son. Uh, and her new husband is played by Jason Clark, who is just enjoying being the worst human being ever. Um... So so you're like, oh, okay, so it's like a sweaty fisherman version of Double Indemnity or something like that. And mm-hmm. you're like, okay, I can I can see how a guy who's written a lot of crime movies would be interested in doing this and has got a pretty good cast. All of the dialogue is weird. None of the plot points seem very, very exciting. There's well, this weird it's, guy it's, from it's, Catalina Caper who keeps showing up, like, running after Matthew McConaughey with a briefcase and mm-hmm. then getting splashed with water and going, He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm your lawyer. I got something to say. Oh, crap. I better get out of here. And, yeah, it's it's steamy in that body heat sort of way, but with really bad dialogue. And it has a body heat story. Yeah. Where Anne, Anne Hathaway... First of all, how do they get this cast? Uh, Anne Hathaway, his ex-wife... Offers him some. It's like ten million dollars in cash. I like think for the life insurance if she if he dies on like his on a, if she kills kills boat. her her current husband. Yeah, who's an if abusive he, asshole. If he, yeah. if he dies on the boat, people will just say he drowned, mm-hmm. and no one will, no one will suspect anything, and I'll give you half the insurance money. Um, but it so like you're watching it. Uh, I'm just like this is just a shitty film noir with mm-hmm. like a really wasted cast. Anne Hathaway looks like she could not be fucking bothered, which is weird <laughs> because Anne Hathaway say what you will, she's not not everything she does is gold. She's always present. Yeah. Like, she should have been Oscar-nominated for Ocean's 8. I saw Bride Wars. Yeah. <laughs> she was great in she Ocean's 8, wasn't she? She was there. She's so good in Ocean's 8. Mm. But, like, and then, halfway through the movie, there's a twist. Mm. The twist, I am offended at myself <laughs> for predicting it. You predicted this? I predicted this because early on in the movie, I thought to myself, this is all very stupid and none of it makes any sense. Oh, no, they wouldn't do that. That'd be the stupidest thing ever. Mm-hmm. Let's just see what Steve Knight's actually got going for us. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, he wrote the stupidest script ever. He pulled out this twist in the middle of the movie. Oh, yeah. I guess, yeah, it's about, a, it's about halfway through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's half of that, the movie. Is... That recontextualizes everything. And, and I, makes you it say you wanna, dumber. You say you want, it to, you want to play coy, so I'm not going to reveal what it is, but yes. It's it it peels back something and reveals something that makes the shitty noir we've been watching make absolutely no sense. Yeah, all of a sudden you're just like all of these scenes where like there's these weird, uncomfortable sexual assault scenes mm-hmm. with like Jason Clark and uh, Matthew McConaughey, like the mother of Matthew McConaughey's son. Like all of those scenes that we're lingering on, you're mm-hmm. like. This should not be here. This is wrong. Also, it, Every, it, none of this makes, makes any sense. It makes at all. you wonder even more why uh, Diane Lane is in this movie. Yeah, Di- Diane Lane shows up as Matthew McConaughey's like would be lover. Like they, they're, they're had, having, they have they have sex. They, like, they they ha- they're having they're, they're having an affair, but it's like really sort of non-committal from both of them. And yeah, and you realize wondering why if. In the context of the reveal, that becomes, like, a really unsavory plot element. Yeah, it really makes you question the mental health of the people uh-huh. involved in the film. And, like, in the in the story, I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, not Maybe not the filmmakers, although mm-hmm. they made some weird choices. Um, 
It's the most baffling <laughs> plot point <laughs> I can remember. Yeah. Like, I can't remember a twist I've seen that was mm. this terrible going back at least I can, to the 80s. I can reveal... I, there's a, a few good films that deal with a reveal on this level that kind of recontextualizes everything on this whole new level. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope this doesn't reveal too much, but there was a movie that came out a couple of years ago called Identity, okay, uh, which was yeah. a, te- a Ten Little Indians riff about a bunch of people going to a hotel and they're all being killed off by some unknown killer one by one. It's a fun flick. It's a fun flick. And the reveal, I'm not going to say what it is, but it does peel back a level of reality and we get to know the context of what those characters are actually doing. Mm -hmm. And I think kind of stupid, but it works. It's kind of stupid, but I think it functions and I think it functions well as a thriller, even after the reveal, Mm -hmm. because we actually are, we're invested in the characters still just in a new kind of way. Yeah. This, we're not invested in the characters anymore. They don't make any sense any longer. And we all start seeing them as these weird sorts of avatars of something else, which doesn't make any sense within the context of the new reveal. No, no. The more you think about it, the less sense mm. it makes. It's a, it's a, I mean, again, they tried. <laughs> the, they the, tried to really pull their, like, mm. well, they'll never see this twist coming. A, I did. That speaks less of me than it does of you, Stephen Knight. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I gotta tell you, man, this, this... This is one of the weirdest goddamn things. Uh, I, I do think only you, it's, it's assume, one of the bad yeah. movies on my list that I actually think you should see. There's like two <laughs> bad movies on my list that I actually think, I think for it, their badness, yeah. you should see them because yeah, they're my, fascinating. My, my number one is that, but uh, yeah, I think I know which number one. Is. I, I, I think you know what it is now. <laughs> yeah, the fanatic. The fanatic is my number three. Uh, sir, <laughs> is, that where, sir, is that where we are now? That's where three? Are, okay. Yeah. The fanatic is crap. Fred Durst from Limp Biscuit wrote a thriller about an ultra fan, a, a kind of mentally infirm man who lives on Hollywood Boulevard, and mm-hmm. he trades as, in memorabilia and tra- autographs. Trades in memorabilia. He makes ends meet by posing as like a British Bobby. He's played by John Travolta in a bad performance in a career that is increasingly full of them. <laughs> this is at least a memorably uh, bad performance. Like, I, I remember watching this movie. Uh-huh. And this movie stinks, by the way. But I remember okay. watching this movie, and this is another one where John Travolta's performance is so bad, I respect him for it. Because <laughs> he committed to like, how bad it is. Like, he completely committed to a script that was obviously terrible. And he is giving 110% to this material. This is one of those times where it's like, John Travolta is not giving an incompetent performance. He is giving a very competent performance of a terrible script. Yeah. This is what I talk about when I say, like, sometimes you can do something bad well. A lot of people, like, come down on his performance in Battlefield Earth, which was one of his dream projects. First of all, the alien design in that movie is awful. Embarrassing. Like, you don't want to look at those creatures. But at least John Travolta is giving sort of like a Batman, like, 1960s Batman villain performance that I, that I enjoy. Yeah. I can. He's, he's fine. Like, he's fine in that movie. In this one, he's giving a bad performance in a bad movie. Uh, yeah, like I said, it was written by Fred Durst of Limp Biscuit, and there's a horrible self-indulgent scene where the characters are listening to Limp Biscuit and they just talk about how great Limp Biscuit is. It's like you can just film yourself masturbating if you want. <laughs> you can just put that on you porn or whatever. Uh, and the problem is. In addition to having a really bad performance and a really horrible setup and a really just dour tone throughout, it tells a really morally reprehensible story about this horrible man who commits horrible crimes and yet I think we're supposed to sympathize with him. 
Because it's about. I think we're supposed to pity him. We're supposed. Well, at least we're supposed. To I pity definitely him. pity him. I think that's what uh, we got. I think it's all we yeah, got. Yeah, because he is obsessed with movie memorabilia. I forgot the name of the actor he's stalking, but he's played by Devin Saul. Yeah. Uh, and he's like sort of an like a low rent action star that he's just obsessed with. Yeah, it does a lot of genre. I think mm. the close equivalent would be someone like Bruce Campbell. Maybe so. Like someone who's a little famous, like you'd recognize but, yeah. him in a crowd, but most mainstream people wouldn't and, know their name. And the movie, the Devin Sawa character is a dick. Mm-hmm. And so we're not really, but Moose, the John Volta character, is also a horrible dick. So I'm not sure who exactly we're supposed to be sympathizing with. And I it, think maybe, maybe. Maybe we're all bad people, man. Yeah, what a pleasant movie. <laughs> well, you, no, argue, look, well, you, you can I, argue that's a noirish that's that, a noirish mentality. It's a noirish mentality, and you and I actually, and you get to plug this now, uh, <laughs> did a commentary track for the Shout Factory's Blu-ray of Peter Berg's 1998 film Very Bad Things, which is available from the Shout Factory today. Buy it today. We're it's, on it. It's actually available um, right now. I thought it came out a couple weeks. Oh, oh it's, uh, it's out this month. It's out this month. If it, if it's pre, you can definitely pre-order it now. You can pre-order it now. We get we're no going, money for, for, for yeah, every no, sale or anything. We're, we're plugging we're just it on because it. we're fun. on that Blu-ray and we 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 want to hype that. And that is a movie about just morally bankrupt characters yeah. doing morally bankrupt things. But it's sort of morally bankrupt from the start. And there's this level of comedic mockery that's going on that lets you know where the movie stands. And even then, I about half our commentary track is us debating whether that works. or well, not. Yeah, whether or not that. Works. <laughs> and and I think it functions to a degree, even though it makes you feel horrible as a human being because yeah. it's about living in hell and the, that's the function of that movie and I think it works fine I don't think Fred Durst is that savvy a filmmaker <laughs> I think that's fine. I don't think he's making some kind of moral commentary about sort of the moral bankruptcy of the the fan community on Hollywood Boulevard no. I think he's just sort of looking at those people and saying wow they're gross and the people they follow are also kind of gross and they both commit horrendous acts of violence and then we're left with this kind of contemplative moment where they're just sort of living their potential. And it's so... But, it, but the plot doesn't allow plot, that. You yeah. know everything's going to be horrible. I will say this before we move on mm. about The Fanatic. The Fanatic is, is quite bad. Um, the Fanatic does have one of the better scenes in the year in this movie directed by Fred Durst because there's a scene mm. where Devin Sawa and his son character playing his son mm-hmm. or in a car and they're listening to Limp Biscuit and talking mm. about how good it is. And this is when music was real music, man. It's yeah, actually, it's actually the uh, line. Something like that. Yeah. Like, uh, first of all, the new metal wave of the early 2000s was shit. It is bad with your alien ant farms and your stains and your puddles of mud. I'm so glad you didn't mention Evanescence. Evanescence, Evanescence mm. was the real deal, man. Uh-huh. Evanescence was... Mm. New new metal was was a a sharp, bad downturn in pop music, as far as I'm concerned. There was not the the height of anything. All right, moving on. Uh, This Mm. is my number four. Mm. Uh, I think we we skipped around a little bit. I think you ended up... Okay, well, it went back to me, and I went to three. Yeah, well, my number three is The Lion King, so we'll we'll both caught up after this anyway. Uh, My number four is one where you can't say a damn thing because it is Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You're right, I can't say anything. Uh, No comment. Yeah, you say what you will, yeah. and I will not not well, comment at all. Full disclosure: Whitney works for Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. Uh, he He's works an, as a projectionist. I'm a projectionist at the New Beverly Cinema, which is a business he mm-hmm. owns, and uh, I've been showing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. In fact, I've been projecting yeah. that movie over and, and over again, and I cannot comment on it on its quality, positive or, or negative. About it. Yeah, positive or negative. Well, whatever I feel is is not something I'm allowed to yeah. professionally do ethically. So, but I but I am on mm-hmm. record as saying that I find this movie very. Very, very frustrating. Mm-hmm. Quentin Tarantino is an excellent filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I feel comfortable saying that I have 
liked or loved most of his movies up until The Hateful Eight, which I felt had a lot of excellent qualities, but it was all in service of kind of a mean-spirited and childish theme. Mm. Um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood sort of continues that tradition where it is full of these incredible elements. The production design is impeccable. Mm. There's a lot of really good performances in it, but it's all in service of this really ugly fan service idea of Hollywood history Mm. where it is about a group of mediocre dudes uh, and how amazing they are and how, and the movie is a huge hit and I think I need to talk about the ending a little bit. So if you need to skip ahead, I'll understand, but it's all about how if mediocre macho dudes had been there the night where Sharon Tate had been murdered Everything would have been okay. And there's something so sleazy and self-serving about that. The way that, like, Quentin Tarantino ogles Sharon Tate and he puts her through his whole foot thing, which is well documented. And the way that, like, you have a you have Steve McQueen just talking about how amazing Sharon Tate is and, oh, if only she was into serious hunky guys instead of, like, dweeby, you know, boyish men. Like... Then so many things would be better. And then the ending of the movie is basically, boy, Mm. did she date the wrong guy, which is a really ugly way to put it. And then on top of it all, the way he treats the Manson family as though it was this enclave of powerful, wicked women. Uh, who had a lot of control over their lives as opposed to being indoctrinated and tortured into a horrifying cult. And then... Basically, for the glee of the audience, not even for some sort of catharsis like he has at the end of Inglorious Bastards, where it feels historically relevant. Uh, but for the glee of the audience, he brutally murders them for us, which is only satisfying if you have a vague, superficial idea of the history. And I'm not convinced that that's Tarantino. I think Tarantino understands his history, but I think he has made a very self serving, it's just a word I'm just going to keep using fan insert film about people like the people Tarantino likes how the whole history of Hollywood would have been better if they had been bigger and been in a better position and I'm sorry I find that gross I all the good scenes that like Leonardo DiCaprio is in and he gives a great performance I think are undermined by the way that the movie portrays his character, Hollywood, Sharon Tate, and the Manson family and their murders. I think it is really, really frustrating because the movie looks good. It looks like it should be good. In a vacuum, it should be good. But actually, in the context of what it is actually saying about history and our relationship to it, it's kind of vile. And I don't like it. And I will leave it there. When I know mm. you're frustrated that you can't say anything, but you can. No comment. I can yeah. say I can say I've seen it. There you go. <laughs> Many times. <laughs> I've projected it a bunch. Yeah. Although, weirdly, I haven't watched it from beginning to end, so I don't That's think weird. I could even comment on it anyway. Well, fair uh, enough. I, I will say this in the interest of, like, just, you know, mm-hmm. no one's here to bounce anything off of me. A lot of people love the shit out of this movie. It's on a lot of top mm-hmm. ten lists of the year. I, they might be right. I This is my opinion. This is my podcast. I'm articulating mm. that. Uh, and in the absence of anyone to agree or disagree with me, I just thought I'd, I know. I know I'm in the minority on this one. Mm. But uh, let's move on. What's your number two? Well, I'm, up, I'm up to number two. What's your number point? two? At this so, one, uh, Lankin was number three. So we're so we're so kind yeah. of. What's your number two? Uh, my number two is uh, the third film to be called Shaft. 
Yeah! Shaft is... Oh my god, I forgot to put Shaft on my list. <laughs> you forgot Shaft? Take off Polaroid! Shaft is my new number three. <laughs> I totally forgot Shaft. I, oh, yeah. I had it written down well, good. on one list uh, and I forgot to put it on this list. Well, oh god. Th- thank your faulty memory because Shaft is a piece of crap. The new Shaft. The, that is the 2019 Shaft. There have been three films called Shaft. Two of them are great. Uh, I, I think there's there's been a, a like the first one is very good from from the 1970s mm-hmm. uh, with Richard Roundtree as John Shaft, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the black private dick who's a sex machine to all the chicks. Shut your mouth. Uh, hey, but I'm talking about Shaft here. Yeah, I know. All right. <laughs> Shaft is is an icon. He's a wonderful character. Uh, in the late 90s, they made uh, they remade it. Mm-hmm. I think it was 2000 actually. Was, or 2000. You're right. Yeah. Uh, it, John Singleton. Uh, Remade it, but then it was revealed that it was a sequel anyway, and that mm, like Samuel Jackson was Shaft's nephew. Yeah, which and, was uh, fine, and I think and it was fine. It was it was just a cute little nod in the middle of the movie, but he was just another character named John Shaft. It's this kind of up, updated black leather, kind of grittier version from the John Singleton view, and mm. and it's it's quite a good film as well. I like it a lot. Yeah, uh, uh, Jeffrey Wright in particular is a great villain in that. Movie. Jeffrey Wright is very good. Christian Bale plays Whitey. <laughs> he's, he does. Uh, he plays a racist like rich play, kid. He plays the, the he racist white guy. Yeah. Gets away with it. He, he's he's quote, he's quote the man in that movie. There's a scene in that uh, movie where Samuel L. Jackson like quits the force but uses his like well, policeman shield as a throwing star and what, flings what, it across the courtroom. But yeah, so what it sticks into a wall. He's in the courtroom. And and the the villain gets is like exonerated in front of him, and he gets so mad that he just rips off his badge and flings it like a ninja star, and it lodges in the wall right next to the judge's head. It's such a it was it's, in all the trailers. It's yeah. such a great moment. It's like it's it's, it's corny, stupid, but it but works. Yeah, great. Uh, I can't imagine what possessed Tim Story Tim Story to turn the Shaft character. An important character, by the way, oh, yeah. like a, an important character, a cultural in, yeah, signifier in, in black cinema and black exploitation cinema. I think and, it's all cinema and just all cinema in general, and turn it into this really horrendous backward farce where the, the Samuel L. Jackson Shaft has now become this old conservative dude. Yeah. Uh, this this wasn't my criticism. It was Dave White and Alonso Duralde who came up with this analogy, but they compared him to Archie Bunker. Yeah. This sort of like old racist guy who's so set in the old ways that he's not willing to change. And the really painful part is, uh, who plays the young Shaft in this one? Oh, what is that uh, dude's name? Uh, Jesse Usher. Yeah. Jesse Usher plays uh, the new generation of Shaft, mm-hmm. and the Samuel Jackson character is his estranged father, and he has to go to him to help him solve a crime uh, in over the course of the plot. Yeah. And this is a movie that is sort of commenting on how progressive politics are ruining everything. Mm-hmm. That all, all of the all older kids uh, with your computers with your, and your, coconut your, water and your, your, yeah, your politeness. You're, and, you're being polite and sensitive, and you know, sexuality is now something I don't even understand anymore. And my son is now my daughter. And what's going on with the world? That's the sympathetic viewpoint of Shaft. Yeah. Because John Shaft now holds that viewpoint, and it is up to the Jesse Usher character, the young Shaft, to meet him mm-hmm. and take on his old-fashioned ways mm-hmm. to become a better person. Yeah. He's, He's got to become a mm, more sexist, more violent, yeah. more judgmental, more um, ignorant human being in order the, to be the great hero. The wonderful Alexandra Ship. Uh, oh yeah, she's who's, good. She's, she's, she's good in, in this. She's very good. She's been in some bad movies. Yeah, she was in Tragedy Girls, which is a really yeah, great Tragedy film. Girls is really really good. Uh, she was also Storm in the latest X Men movies. movies. In, the, yeah. the two not very good ones. Yeah, uh, not her fault, yeah. but it's not a good. Movie. 
they they do she gives this film such a disservice or do her a disservice yeah in that she is actually having a very good relationship with the jesse asher character with young shaft Mm -hmm. because they are both very sensitive open people and they're sharing emotions they haven't slept together yet however and this is uh, unacceptable to samuel l jackson Mm -hmm. and says you have to be a violent misogynist dickhead in order for her to sleep with you because that's the way to get women because it's worked for me. mm -hmm. And so he does. And she falls in love with him when he does those things. When she sees him whip out a gun, murder people and treat her very roughly. She melts now again. And that is so painful to watch. It is now again, a movie doesn't have to fit our worldview in order to mm. be good. I'm going to say that. No. I think that we can agree that that's clear. Mm. The thing, first off, there is a matter of taste, and I think this new Shaft is in poor taste. Mm. And the reason I think it's in poor taste isn't because it espouses a worldview I disagree with, but because it doesn't espouse the worldview of Shaft. No. You look at the original Shaft, Shaft is not disrespectful to women. Shaft mm. is not homophobic. He's not. He has scenes uh-huh. with gay characters, and they're way more positive than the portrayal of his attitude towards homosexuality mm. in this movie. He is a very progressive hero in mm. the original movies. Yeah. That And, okay, I appreciate that was the Richard Roundtree version. Fair enough. There's nothing like this in the John Singleton version. No. This is all made up for this movie. Mm. It would be like if all of a sudden... In Ryan Johnson's The Last Jedi, we meet back up with Luke Skywalker, and all of a sudden he like hates all Wookies, and you're like, yeah. "What did you? When did that and, happen?" And, like, he, is that and, a he thing? Ma- and he mentions it in every scene about yeah. how how badly he wants and, to kill Wookies, and, and Ray yeah. has to like you know teach him a valuable lesson about liking Wookies, and you're just like, "But then where did this come from?" But then ultimately the story would be about how Ray comes to hate Wookies as well. Yeah, and they kill Chewbacca in that scene as a heroic moment. <laughs> Okay, that, the that's new the shaft new isn't shaft. quite that horrifying. Well, no, it's, it's not pretty quite close. that horrifying. But... It's pretty close. And on top of that, mm. it's just not good. No, it's it's... Not, the jokes aren't funny. The action doesn't work. It's really flatly filmed. Like, uh-huh. Tim's story film, he just does that sort of even comedy hey, filmmaking where Luca. it's all it's all flat angles. Luca, put down that knife, Luca. What are you doing? Uh, Luca, no, no! <laughs> Luca's messing with coloring. <laughs> put the Chancellor down! <laughs> Yeah, uh, Tim Story, uh, perhaps infamously, did uh, two films based on the Fantastic Four. Films which, uh, again, I will defend to a degree. I think they're not very interestingly told stories, but I think they get the characters and the tone kind of right in those movies when it comes to Fantastic Four. I think Uh, the Fantastic Four is... Believe it or not, I will defend the second Fantastic Four. I think Mm -hmm. that one gets the characters right, and I think the first one, not so much. All right. I, I feel like if... If there's any, if there was ever a superhero team that felt like a sitcom, it was the Fantastic Four because yeah. it's about a bickersome family that live in a big mansion together and they have to be a superhero team. It, it's a sitcom, so if you make a movie that feels slightly comedic and a little bit bright and flat, I think it, to a degree, works with the Fantastic Four. I think the script is bad, but I think there's some things going on right. I'm not going to say he ruined the Fantastic Four; is that he's a, a rotten filmmaker for making those movies. No. I'm going to say he's a rotten filmmaker for making Shaft because yeah. it's full of bad ideas. It's not dynamically filmed. The action is boring. The story is not interesting, yeah. and there's not a single laugh. In I don't it. know. I don't know why we thought the key to bringing a new Shaft movie into the mix was mm. to undermine Shaft. Yeah, yeah. Like, like not 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 like was... not even to celebrate Shaft, mm. but to like to turn Shaft into a joke. 
Well, and if Shaft had somehow, like, had a bad legacy, for instance. Yeah. Like, let's say, uh, what, what's something that has a bad legacy? Well, like, let's look at the sexism of James Bond, for example. Oh, there you go. The way James that the Austin Bond, Powers yeah. movies sort of send the, that, sent that up. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. you can if, work if, with that. If there was a bad legacy of Shaft, if he had, was, had left something horrible on the table and you were satirizing that, then that would be acceptable. That'd be fair. But there's nothing bad on the table with Shaft. Not Everybody loves Shaft. Yeah, Shaft was not a bad character. Shaft yeah. did not do terrible things. Like he was fine. I mean, those sequels are kind of forgettable. But yeah, I, 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 yeah, but yeah, but uh, mm. yeah. I don't. Yeah. Anyway, it's ridiculous. Thank you yeah, for they, remembering they, they this did a, movie. They did a horrendous disservice to a great character in a really, really awful backward film that is sexist and violent in bad ways. I thank you for remembering mm. this movie because I had forgotten it. Okay, mm. my number, my number three was The Lion King. Uh, my number two and my number one, I had such a hard time <laughs> picking what I felt was the worst movie uh-huh. of the year, and I decided that my number two couldn't be the worst movie of the year because it's the other movie I recommend you see. Mm. Cats. It's Cats. Cats is my number one. I understand. I'm glad you put it as your number one. I think it is a really valuable number one because it's a number one I think we can all get behind. It's one of those weird things where this is going to be mentioned at the Razzies. It's probably going to get the Razzie for worst film. And Razzies only ever go for low-hanging fruit. They're a cheap joke. The Razzies are kind of meaningless. However, Uh, this time it would be fine. This time it would be totally warranted. Because this is another one where, again, you know, Star Wars had the safety net. Mm-hmm. Which is why, you know, I was so, I'm baffled that the new mm-hmm. one is so terrible because there were so many people just trying to make sure it didn't suck. Mm-hmm. Maybe not great, but making sure it didn't suck was was the job. The cat, cats doesn't have a safety net, but they're falling into an open septic tank. They're so expensive. This mm-hmm. is a huge production with a giant, respectable cat. You put this cast in any other movie, people would be like, well, that sounds like a good movie. What you got there? Ian McKellen and Judy Dench and mm-hmm. Idris Elba and mm-hmm. Jason Derulo. Okay, maybe not Jason Derulo, but like, <laughs> and, a, and a bunch of like Dan, the star dancer from from the British Ballet. Yeah. yeah, these are all interesting things. And then you watch the movie, and we just reviewed this on our show, same show we reviewed Star mm. Wars. Um, you're, the only rational response to watching Cats is to go insane. <laughs> like the only rational response is like because you're stuck in a theater not when you're at home and you can pause it or mm-hmm. whatever when you're stuck in a theater with cats the only response is what the hell is happening you, you don't understand any of the decisions none of the creative decisions uh, the, make the creative, any, any sense, sense it, all of the special effects just look like money burning mm-hmm. the, the it's, scene it's brown and dingy it's, it's brown not and good looking I don't I hate the music first of all I hate the, the music <laughs> I don't hate all I, the music I, I hate Andrew Lloyd Webber I hate his music and yeah. I, I feel like like just suffering through these kind of repetitive operatic little snippets is just difficult as is. Speaking of cats, Luca, get but, off the counter, buddy. But when we get to speaking of cats in the kitchen, when we get to the uh, cat in the kitchen, the cat in the kitchen <laughs> sequence, and she sings a song about it's Jenny Any Dots, and whenever and she sings a song about how great it is to eat things, and she has bugs and mice doing her bidding. And the bugs and mice are also played by actors in CGI suits. And they're all and terrified because they know she's going to eat them, and then she does. And she does, and she eats miniature people and then removes her skin. And you're she's wearing so, clothing underneath her skin? It's like you're so horrified you almost have an orgasm. It's like the weirdest <laughs> thing. Please get the cat off the counter. We're empowering him with our talk of cats. Cats is, again, it's a hell of a watch. It's fascinating and weird. Mm-hmm. 
but I can't explain it. Like, I can't explain. Like, I understand the stage show because the stage show has elements of a stage show. There's live dancing and there's interaction with the audience and there's something presentational about it. But trying to turn it into a movie and a movie with a more clear narrative actually just makes it more baffling and hard well, to and there's, follow. There's a way to do this as a movie. First of all, sell animation. Just animate it. Just make it about just cats. Just make it about real, like, cats. Don't yeah. do CGI either. Don't try to make yeah. photorealistic cats. Just do drawings of cats. They take the same cats from Cats Don't Dance and they're doing a yeah, version of cats. Yeah. And you stage it like a cabaret. Yeah. The cat, each, they each have their own number, they sing a song, and they move off the stage. That's it. We're good. That's all you need. That's all it was. Yeah. And they made do, it all fucking Do the weird. movie that way. Anyway, mm. cats. I highly cats. recommend you see it. Yeah, uh, you've you've heard everybody talk when they released that first preview. It was just so baffling mm-hmm. and awful. Then then they released the movie and it's baffling and awful. Well, they had just, to release the movie again because the CGI was so bad. I'm so glad I saw it opening day with yeah. some of that un- clearly unfinished CGI, <laughs> like the, clearly not ready to be released here, CGI. Here's the thing: the bad CGI was not the the film's biggest problem. No, but I love that I got to see it. Yeah, I yeah. love that I got to see an mm. unfinished version of the movie in theaters mm. opening day. Yeah, this, I love that. This baffling narrative about these bizarre cat people that live in a bizarre parallel cat universe and the point of the movie is and they say they sing it at the end the whole thesis of the film is cats aren't dogs and <laughs> Judy Dench and, and just looks a, at the camera and says and, that and, and you vomit your magic mushrooms into the bucket <laughs> uh, so I, I was reading I, I love reading all of the takes on Twitter on this movie just because everybody is completely taken aback by how bizarre and awful and again this it's movie been is. so long since we've seen a giant scale movie with this kind of cast the Oscar winning director yeah. yeah where nothing about it makes any sense mm. and there was only one other movie this year where I honestly couldn't tell you what the fuck possessed them to do this <laughs> and again the competition was cats uh oh what could it possibly be The Haunting of Sharon Tate uh Oh, the Haunting of Sharon Tate. The other Sharon Tate. The other so Sharon this, Tate was, this, movie. this year was the 50th anniversary mm-hmm. of the horrifying Sharon Tate murders by the mm-hmm. Manson family. Quentin Tarantino released a film that I considered, again, when he can't say anything, mm-hmm. but I considered it to be in very poor taste. And that tastelessness was hidden behind this veneer of quality filmmaking, which makes it what I would call a bad, good movie, mm-hmm. where there's a lot of quality filmmaking in it, but underneath it is an ugly, you know, festering heart. Mm-hmm. Haunting of Sharon Tate doesn't even have the good part. Oh, jeez. Haunting of Sharon Tate is one of the most egregiously exploitative films I've ever seen, and I seek out egregiously exploitative films. <laughs> Imagine, if you will, a movie that treats the Sharon Tate murders like a slasher. Like a fun... I, 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 you hit it so much, you knock your I, no- notebook onto the ground. it on the floor! I took my notebook on the ground! <laughs> it's... It's basically, so it's the days before the Sharon Tate murders, and they're all hanging out at her house, mm. and the Manson family is just peering in through the windows, mm, and then people dream about being killed by the Manson family, and then they're not, so you know there's that's still coming, and you're going to see more of it, and it's so, so shitty. It's so shitty, you guys. It's so painfully, like, ineptly filmed. Well, what wasn't, isn't the, the premise that... Like, it, it's about the Manson murders, but there's also, like, a supernatural okay, element to there's it. There's actually... Okay, uh, this is actually true, and this is weird. Okay. I'll give you this. This is a weird thing, and there's that way put it in a movie. 
Sharon Tate was a celebrity before she died, and she did a lot of interviews. And before she died, it was like a year or something before, she did an interview where she talked about a nightmare she had about a home invasion and being killed in a home invasion right. in a way that was Cre- not entirely dissimilar to how she ended up dying. Creepily prescient. Very yeah. creepy. That's 100% creepy, mm. and I get it. Using that as a plot point to say that, uh, that Sharon Tate was psychically predicting her own murders and is like got these Manson family records that are in the like, you know, Manson had his own demos and everything like that. And she's listening to them and like guy like who lives in like the van outside. is like, oh, no. they backward mass to this. This she, is so fascinating and interesting. She didn't like nobly sacrifice herself to like protect some sort of demon or something. No, no. I, oh, okay. that, God, that might have actually, that, that that actually been a point. Like, <laughs> no, no, no. I will say this. Uh, they also, not unlike Once Upon a Time in Mexico, they do play yeah. with the history uh, of it. Hollywood. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you're right. Sorry. I was thinking <laughs> that's, of that's a different Robert, movie, I was thinking Robert yeah, sorry. Yeah. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood mm. has an ending where they fuck with history. Haunting of Sharon Tate has an ending where they fuck with history. And the Haunting of Sharon Tate ending is a big old fuck you to the audience. It's a big old fuck you to the people who are involved in that tragedy. Mm. It is so... Poorly conceived, tasteless, and incompetently produced. It's it's really, really bad. <laughs> it's really, really bad. I don't even know, like... Wow. <laughs> this this is one that I was scared off of. I was actually kind of interested in seeing it, yeah. because... It's from I, the director of the Amityville Murders, which you hated. Oh, yeah. That wasn't yeah. very good. No, he takes real-life real things... And makes them well, worse and more tasteless. It, at least with the Amityville things, there's been this whole like haunting myth that's been surrounding those murders for the longest time. Right. And the Amityville murders was more or less a remake of uh, Amityville 2. Uh, yeah, because uh, that was actually the, tr- the allegedly true story of what happened of, in the history of, of that uh, house. Ronnie DeFeo, who actually did commit murders in that house. Um, yeah, that part. That, that part that's, is that's a true story, yeah. and they just added a supernatural element, which is something that the DeFeos told the press. Yeah. So this is just a dramatization of this story that is actually, admittedly, a hoax. Right. I, and I'm okay with that sort of level of play. Um, that they just remade Amityville 2. I think they just made a, a less, in, like a more dynamically filled, but less interesting version. I'm just mm-hmm. glad that well, Diane like, Franklin but came your back. Point but, is, yeah. Your point is well taken. The Amityville has a certain sense of mythology built around it. Yeah, well, and, 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 and the, the Manson murders as well. How many films have been about the Manson? That's true, but there, but, but there aren't a lot of like people saying that the Mansons were supernatural or something. Uh, it, Bruce Van Beber made a really unbelievably harrowing movie in the early 2000s called The Manson Family. Oh, yeah. I didn't see um, that. Was, was it good? Was it really good? It's, it's, I mean, it's hard. Okay. Because it spends time with the Manson family and we get to sort of see them go down the path of insanity and how they're all just sort of having these drug-fueled orgies and believing that they're apostles. And it be, turns into this, like, really abstract, natural-born killers type of violent phantasmagoria by the end. Great. It's really kind of amazing in a way, but uh, it's unbelievably dark. It's like really hard to take. So there's plenty of myth around the Manson family. And I think Bruce Van Beber's film was sort of the best way to do that because you just turned it into a nightmare, Mm. but trying to add that to the, the famous victim seems really irresponsible to me. No, it is. And it really doesn't encourage me that the guy's next movie is the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson, which is about the last few days in her life before she died. Sorry, it's me and a Suvari. It's Cup's supposed to come out this next year. 
or this year, I guess now. Well, I'm glad Mina Savari is getting work. I guess, mm, but like, this is not sort of brushed this is aside. A, that this is a woman. weird thing to try to build your career on. I'm just going to say that right mm. now. Anyway, a lot of mistakes were made in 2019. Mm. Hopefully, 2020 will be better, and maybe we can learn from these and well, we can all move on. 2019 was quite a good year for film, and there yes. were a lot of really, really great films that came out this year. And Agreed. actually, uh, had to fight a little bit to come up with you know a list of the worst. But a lot of these were really, really awful. Um, so my runners-up, uh, we, yeah, we mentioned Three from Hell. Uh, we mentioned um, uh, Countdown. Countdown is just a bad, dumb idea. I, I can't be mad at Countdown. <laughs> no I mean, matter it's, how hard I try, I can't be mad at Countdown. <laughs> just because it's so silly. Yeah. Um, I didn't like it, Aladdin just because mm-hmm. it was. It felt really cynical to me. Uh, Dark Phoenix was just this sort of bland nothing of a movie that doesn't even look as expensive as it is. That's true. It doesn't have any ideas in it. It's just sort of a bland superhero uh, thriller. Uh the only thing good about Anna was a few action scenes. The rest of it was just con- a convoluted mess. I agree. It felt really self-serving by a, a filmmaker with a, a really horrible past. Turns out. As it turns out. Yeah. Um, my, is that it for your runners-up? Uh, yeah, that's kind of it for my runners-up. Right, my runners-up, uh, Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, which is okay. just... It's so bafflingly stupid. After a while, I couldn't help but enjoy it, but it makes no sense. It's really, really badly told in every mm. capacity. It doesn't work. Uh, Brian De Palma's Domino was a bit of a tragedy. Okay. Because uh, he's clearly still got a lot of energy as a filmmaker. And I heard some really bad things about like the production of that film. And maybe the budget got ruined or whatever like that. But even so, the script is pretty terrible. The performances are inert. And there's like two set pieces that are worth being footnotes in De Palma's filmography. But mm. not good. Uh, Dark Phoenix is on my list as well. Okay. Where... Yeah, that's another one where big, terrible production cycle, bad things happened. And <laughs> it just came out so inert. Like, the the villains in that movie... But played who, by Jessica Chastain, yeah, good actress. Yeah, nothing to do. Like, what is it with the last two X-Men movies where, like, the villains were just these boring ciphers? And that that's something I always appreciated about the X-Men movies was it was at least nom- more than other superhero movies, at least, mm. were about ideas. Like yeah, about the, the, the heroes and the villains actually to, had like yeah. com- opposing viewpoints as opposed to just like lust for power. Yeah, didn't work. Um, the Curse of La Llorona. That was a boring movie, wasn't it? It was a boring movie, and I found it frustrating because this is a part of the the Conjuring universe, although mm. they didn't advertise it as such, probably because it's not good. Well, but they said it was from the makers of the Conjuring, but they didn't say a step in the Conjuring saga, even though it explicitly is. It very explicitly is. They actually have flashbacks. Mm. Like it's clearly in the chronology. Um, yeah, the thing that frustrates me is that they take um, a, a I believe La Llorona is a Mexican folk yeah, demon. Yeah, Mexican folk tale. You know, uh, and... Uh, they uh, make El, it about El, how El Santo wrestled her once. Oh, that's cool. I didn't yeah. know that. Uh, and they make it about how when uh, like immigrants brought her to America and now she's menacing white people and now that's the story we should care about. So on top of just not being a very good movie, it's also just kind of shitty politics too and I can't mm-hmm. even get behind the basic construction of it. Uh, Rambo Last Blood, speaking of which, <laughs> I gave it some bonus points for huh. gore and that kept it off my top ten, but yeah, it's yeah. not good. Uh, Climax is a movie everyone else loves but me. But I, <laughs> I, like, I like Climax. I know, I know. Uh, Just because of how, how shrill and abrasive it is. I appreciate shrill and abrasive. I appreciate the dance choreography mm. in this movie. I, what I do not appreciate is the racism, which is all over this goddamn thing. Mm. I found that really off-putting and, I, I, and, I, I think, and, and not not in a way that it felt like the movie was about that, but uh, in, more in the way of 
I feel like the filmmaker has some unexamined issues. I, I, That's how I think it the, out. I think the film is about that. I don't, I, I don't think it's 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 self racist. I, I think it just is is addressing racism. I didn't see that, but okay. we can have that conversation another time. And then lastly, Anna. No, okay. um, there's like a couple of good scenes, but yeah, mostly the, 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 this is just a really boring La Femme Nikita yeah. knockoff yeah, from yeah. the director of La Femme Nikita. The, the the star is really good, and uh, and that fight scene in the restaurant is awesome. That big fight yeah. scene in the restaurant is really fucking cool. And there's mm-hmm. a couple of fun bits where she's like going undercover as like a fashion model and some good fashion modeling scenes that are kind of funny. Yeah, but yeah, it's mostly a piece yeah. of crap. Uh, um, I, I was thinking of uh, Santo y Mantequilla Napoles en la Venganza de la Llorona. Oh, okay. From 1974. Well, also known as Vengeance of the Crying woman okay now i yeah. really want to see that movie. I'm not gonna <laughs> um all right so that is it for critically acclaimed that was our picks for the worst movies of the year thank you very much uh, for joining us and for remembering everything 2019 gave us not just the, the good the good and the bad um and there was a lot of mediocrity as well but i feel like if we dedicate an entire podcast to just the least memorable movies no one would remember what's, that what's podcast yeah. <laughs> but um certainly you can look at all of our reviews throughout the whole year hey remember captive state no, I, no I, I actually don't remember. I Captain. saw it and I don't remember. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go it's over an alien invasion film. In the interest of being of being like uh, 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 fair, I'm going to skim real, real fast. Oh, just all the, the films. All, all the films released. I saw this year, and then I'm just going to go like, oh, I forgot that came out. Yeah. <laughs> okay. uh, Arctic Dogs. Forgot that one came out. That's that's been making a few worst of lists. Arctic Dogs. Uh, already forgot about Bombshell. <laughs> uh, let's see what we it's, got here. Uh, Brightburn, which I actually kind of liked when it came like, out, but just I, I didn't like make Bright, much. I like Brightburn, okay. Just That's, didn't make much of an impression. I, I remember Brightburn. Uh, let's see what we got here. It's like a, uh, a Tales from the Crypt inflected Superman story. Uh, Depraved, which was a modern uh, take on Frankenstein. Oh. Um, good Frankenstein performance. The rest of the movie is mm. kind of boring. Uh, let's see what we got here. Donnie Brook. Forgot that came out. <laughs> it's about a gross underground fighting tournament. Uh, let's see what we got here. Yada, yada, yada. Falling in love, but I suppose that one makes sense. <laughs> I, I I did see Falling in Love. 47 meters down, uncaged. Keep forgetting that one came out. Uh, oh, I saw I saw that one too. Uh, let's see what we got I here. How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. I'm just amazed at how just sort of meh that was. Um, because the first two were great. I guess it was a bit of a disappointment compared to the other two. Yeah, just compared it's, to the first it's two. It's still fine. Yeah. Uh, let's see what we got here. Um, I, I like Hiccup and the Burkeans. Yeah, sure. I can appreciate that. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Mar- <laughs> marriage story. Oh, Ben and Black International. Oh, which is yeah. fine, but like, like you can watch it, mm. but you don't need to. Mm. Um, let's see, Midway, some handsome visual effects. It's a Roland Emmerich film, yeah, too. It's a big, big budget movie. Yeah, one. just, eh. <laughs> some, some movie called Next Level, which I don't even remember what that was about. Um, yeah, I saw a movie this year called Don't Let Go, and it has such a nondescript title that I have to remember what it's about, and it's a time travel story. Oh, the killer kid movie The Prodigy? Oh, I missed The Prodigy. Yeah. I actually wanted to go, like, out of my way to see it, just because I like killer kid movies, but, yeah. yeah. Uh, the Secret Life of Pets 2? It's fine. Like, it's fine. You mm-hmm. can watch it. Um, right. Let's see. We got Triple Frontier. Huge budget. Huge cast. Keep oh, forgetting yeah. it exists. Yeah, it was, well, it was a Netflix only as well. Oh, and uh, uh, let's see. Two more. Uh, no. Yeah, two more that I forgot about. Uh, Waves. Wait, yeah, Waves doesn't leave much of an impression. I know. Some people love it's this kind, movie. Kind of, I find direct, it, kind of a directionless movie. I, I find it just this really superficial melodrama. It's a couple of good performances, but nothing to really write home about. Mm-hmm. And uh, Zombieland Double Tap, which was mildly oh, amusing while you're watching it, and then it's it gone. It vanishes from your, like, your mind. Like, you can watch it. Times, yeah. You can watch it on, like, a, a plane mm-hmm. or something like that. You have a decent time, but... 
it's not worth really remembering. Also, when you g- sort of delve into its politics, mm. it might make a good double feature with the latest Rambo film. Hey, hey, cats. about sort of the the importance of arming yourself as an American is sort of right. Hey, 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 Serge. Yeah, and they don't like those movies either. Sergio no, doesn't. Sergio and Luca don't like those. All movies right, we'll either. be back next week uh, with our picks for the best films of the decade. Yeah. That's a hell of a thing. Narrowing mm-hmm. that sucker down to 10 is ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, I have a short list, and it's like 40 movies. Yeah, same yeah. here. It's going to be real rough. There's like three films I knew I got to put on there, and the rest I'm just like, oh, God, and I'm just <laughs> flipping them all around. <laughs> so it's going to be real, real tricky. Um, but that's coming up as well, and then after that, we'll do our list of the worst movies of the decade. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, also, at some point, we need to start doing some new movies. I've only seen one new movie in 2020. Uh, mm-hmm. Spoiler alert, The Grudge sucks. Hey, we reviewed it. <laughs> there you go. We'll talk about it in more detail at some point, but the new The Grudge comes out this weekend. Hmm. It's not a good movie. No. It's not a, it's I, not, I've heard it's not. It's it's not I'm a fan of the franchise I've, in general. It's not good. I don't like that it's the third film to be called simply The Grudge. Because well, there's the Japanese original, which was billed in America as Juan The Grudge. Right, which means it's then, not actually the grudge. But then they remade it as The Grudge. And then there was The Grudge 2, and now there's The Grudge again, but it's in the same continuity, which drives me up the freaking wall. I don't wall. even... It's a thing. Anyway, we'll talk about that another time. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, we are on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I am at Whitney Seibold. If you want to support the show and get a ton of exclusive content, you can go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, we have a bunch of bonus podcasts on there, including all our yesterdays, our new Star Trek podcasts. Uh, not so new anymore, but it was yeah. new this last year. Uh, we have Only the Best, where we review every single nominee for Best Picture at the Academy Awards in chronological order. Uh, we have the Cancel Too Soon monthly movie, where we review uh, TV movies and miniseries, and a whole bunch of other stuff besides. We need to catch up on some commentary tracks, but we do those as well. Um, tons of stuff. Mm. Uh, and if you want to email us about any of our selections... Uh, you want to take us to task, you want to say that the new Shaft is the best movie ever made, uh, you can email us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net, and we may read your letter on our podcast, We've Got Mail, which is also available right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. Uh, please stick around. We might have some cool announcements coming uh, in the next week or so. We've got a few new ideas uh, for things to do with the network uh, that we're still hammering out the details, but I'm super stoked. Yeah. I had this idea, and I thought Whitney would never go for it, and Whitney was like, "Yeah," and I'm like, That's "Ooh, a, such a pretty good idea." <laughs> so we'll we'll we need to hammer out some thoughts, but we're we're going to be doing something cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, I think that's about it. So Whitney, anything you want to say before we go? No, um, don't watch these movies except for <laughs> except for cats, except for cats and Serenity. Cats and Serenity are, are worth are seeking ki- out. Kind of must sees everything else is just you don't need to see repellent. Yeah, um, and thank you for for joining us on this journey this, through our stream of crap. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you everybody for listening, and never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?